Knockback is brought to you by thousands of supporters on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. If you want to show your support for Knockback, as well as CLS's PlayStation podcast Sacred Symbols, the eclectic interview series Fireside Chats, and the YouTube gaming series SideQuest, please consider going to Patreon and pledging for a monthly amount that makes the most sense for you. Your Patreon support doesn't only ensure that CLS continues to produce the content you love, like Knockback, but you can get cool perks, too, depending on your level of support. You can get early access to each episode of Fireside Chats, Sacred Symbols, and Knockback, totally ad-free. You can vote for show topics and provide feedback to be read on air. You can listen to exclusive podcasts only available to patrons, and much more. Your support is essential if Colin's Last Stand is to continue well into the future, so please consider showing some love. Again, that's patreon.com slash Stand. Thank you for your kindness, generosity, and support. Without you, CLS wouldn't exist. But enough of that. On to the show. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined, as always, by my brother, the gargantua, Dagan Moriarty. All right, all right, all right. All right, all right. All right, all right. I, they can't they can't they can't see because uh, it's a podcast, but I'm doing the roly finger thing that he does in the Lincoln commercial <laughs> when they just zoom in on him and he's driving and he's doing his little weird roly finger thing. And you know who him is. You have to know that Matthew McConaughey, of course, the seminal Matthew the... McConaughey as Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> is there a more charming man in Hollywood? No, literally, literally. No, there definitely isn't. A more charming man in Hollywood. Today's episode, Dagan, of Knockback. This is the final episode of Wave 8. We've done eight episodes in Wave 8. And we've moved our schedule around quite a bit because we wanted to accommodate some roving things that we had wanted to do or pushing some things out that we feel like we might be able to do better in the future. Our plans are always changing. But we are now officially all caught up as of the time we're recording this on Patreon's, you know, selected topics because Interstellar, which is today's episode, was selected over on Patreon. So we've done Batman and we've done all these other things that you guys have selected. So we've we've cleaned the slate. Now, the slate's now going to fill back up. Right. But we've delivered every single episode that you guys have voted for so far with this Interstellar episode being the last one. You guys love your Christopher Nolan. You guys, this is the second time you've voted for Christopher Nolan, which I think is a little peculiar. Yeah. Because I would have definitely gotten to this movie. Right. Yeah. You love Interstellar is one of my favorite movies. Top five for me. And you love Christopher Nolan's. I love Christopher Nolan. I love science. I love space. I love everything about this particular thing. You right? love Christopher Nolan's body of work. Of work, right. <laughs> I would do anything to Christopher Nolan's body he would ever oh. ask me to do. Yeah. I'm looking at him right now, actually. He's a handsome man. Yeah, he's a good-looking guy. Yeah. His brother's not bad, too, is, who is obviously his partner. Now, Who's the older of the two? I don't know. Okay. That's a good question. Yeah. You would assume Christopher Nolan was older. I I would think so, but who knows? Yeah, who, who could know? Who could possibly know? I mean, we could very easily look, but I don't, I don't want to know. Okay. Because it ruins <laughs> don't everything. Don't look. It's Jonathan, right? His Jonathan. Brother? Yep. Jonathan okay. Nolan. Now, for the uninitiated, Knockback is our weekly nostalgia and retro podcast I do with my brother. You guys can support the, every episode of this show, this show, Sacred Symbols, Fireside Chats, etc. over on Patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand to get early ad-free access to every episode every week, the ability to submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas to our show, to vote on topics like you voted for Interstellar. You guys submit your topic ideas, other fans vote on your ideas, and then the best idea is put forth as the topic we do. And I really enjoy that as well. You can also get exclusive podcasts, including six hours of Q&A with Dagan over on Patreon. So check all of that out if you can. Leave us nice reviews on free feeds if you're freeloaders. We love you, too. <laughs> now, Dagan, Interstellar, as I said, is a really special movie to me. We have much to say about it. We just watched it. I mean, I've seen it, I don't know, five or six times. I was going to ask you, how many times have you seen probably, it? That's probably like the fifth or sixth time I've seen it. Oh, you've seen it a lot. And 
I really love that movie. And it's really special. We just watched it, so it's fresh on the mind. Mm-hmm. And we're going to get into that in a second. But before we do, we like to start every episode of Knockback with different little segments that we do for different waves. I'm seizing control of the operation this time. You are indeed. And making Dagan play a game instead of him subjecting to me to his various whims. And <laughs> we're calling it It's About Time, this segment. Where did my notebook go? Also known as Dagan's kind of an idiot. Well, I feel like you're doing pretty well. Now, I'm going to take a picture of all these as we go and put them on on, <laughs> on Twitter uh, so you Twitter? can see. Because here, like I, I, I've showed you, like I keep. Well, that's actually the one we haven't used yet. So you won't want to see that. Oh, no, no. Uh, but you see, like, you're, you know, my dates, the things and then your guesses. I love that. And in parentheses, there's a uh, reprieve for the one you got worst. Yeah. And that's in parentheses. Next it's always one. 10 questions. Has it always been 10? So it's far? always been 10. Always 10. Okay. No fewer and no more. I always the 10 question format always reminds me of tests in school that were the harshest or quizzes because one wrong, two wrong, you got an 80, three wrong, it's a 70. Right. What? You know, it's really tough. It's I've tough. told I've told the story before about how in college I was taking a higher end colonial America class in which the only things that counted for your score was a midterm and a final. That's it. Man. And Holy I remember cow. on the final. So it was 30 percent midterm, 70 percent final, I think. Holy shit. And then we just had a stack of books to read. OK. And I remember that the final was five questions. And I or six questions. We had to answer three of them. And each question you had to answer in a full blue book. So you got three blue books. You know, the blue book things that you write. Each yeah. one was you had to fill for what? each question. Oh, you my had God. An hour for each. So three hours. An hour for each. Yeah. And I remember reading That's it. So you could select wild. three of six. OK. And this could be based on like anything you've read. We had like 12 books. Right. Okay. So it's like, you know, discuss Boston's colonial economy in regard to the Stamp Act and stuff, stuff like that. And I remember reading the first three questions being like, oh, no, I don't know. I don't know the first one. I don't know the second oh, one. No. I don't know the third one. And then serendipitously, I knew the fourth, fifth and sixth. Ones. Oh, thank goodness. Like, I couldn't believe it. I was always working my way down the list. I'm Ugh. like, oh, no, oh, that had to be horrifying. It was because it was 70 percent of your, you know, 70 percent of your grade. But I, I'll never forget that. Oof. I loved college for those kinds of things where it was like, come to class if you want. Don't come to class if you want. But here you're going to do like three different things that are going to count for your entire score. Now, would have would going to, you know, regularly attending class for that particular mm. class, would that have helped you? I think so. Okay. I had, you know, I took copious notes. I didn't miss class. I wasn't one of those guys. I used to cut certain classes that I didn't care about. Like I cut jazz music all the time. We took, we took, (laughs) I took the history of jazz music in Blackman Auditorium, which is like our auditorium at Northeastern. There was like probably literally 500 people in that class. And so we had a little scheme going on, almost a scheme, like schmear, where I knew a few people in the class. And so we would take turns going to the class and writing our names on the sign-in sheet since they would send a sign-in sheet around. I think I went to that class two times. Very crazy. Maybe three. Maybe three times. <laughs> I got an A. All right. All right. Digging. Mm-hmm. Let's get into this. Are you ready? I'm ready. Again, we'll give you a reprieve on your on your worst answer. And this could be anything. Movies, books, video games, events. Okay. Let's start with the movie. Okay. What year did the seminal American film Taxi Driver mm. come out? Mm. Good movie. Great movie. Have you ever seen that movie, Carl? Of course. Oh, it's a disturbing movie. It's very disturbing. Hard I love to the ha- watch. I love the haircut, but yeah, it's disturbing. <laughs> I think I've actually like had that haircut almost. Travis Bickle. Uh, I would say, oh, and Martin Scorsese, we haven't talked about him too much on the podcast. No, yet. we can do a whole, oh man, we can do a whole thing just on this film, but definitely oh, plenty of, of Scorsese. Oh, oh we'll get there. Oh, of course. Yeah. Of course. Uh, I would, you know, I'm a little mixed up between Taxi Driver and Raging Bull. Another one of my Scorsese favorites. I'll say Taxi Driver. I'll say 77. I may be off, but I'll say 77. Okay. What year did the original Dragon Quest come out in Japan? In Japan. Dragon Quest 1. 
I will say, I'll say 86. I hope it's not 85. I'll say 86. Okay. What year did L. Frank Baum's The Wonderful Wizard of Oz come out? Mm. The book. That the book, obviously, the novel. The, the, uh, yeah, the novel that obviously everything's based the on. The novelization. We, uh, I did a big thing at Sesame Workshop with this story. Actually, we like, we had a whole bunch, we had a whole batch of like content for older kids in one of these lessons that we worked on all that Japan cram school curriculum. And that was one of these was, a, so I did a lot with this book. In fact, I read it. It's a great book. And, and, and that would be another great topic, not only for the movie, but because a lot of people think that it's a massive political allegory, which is really cool. You could get that from it. Well, like the, the witch of the West, the witch of the East, the, the tin man, the, it's all like, you know, he has no heart and yeah. like the, the man in the, in the behind the curtain and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Very political or so they say. Great point. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you could certainly take it that way. I would, um, I'll say, you know what? I, I don't know for sure. I'll say, just to be safe, I'll go in the middle and say 1900. Okay. What year did the American Revolution begin? The American Revolution began... Lexington and Concord. Lexington and Concord. April of what year? It's April. Oh, God. Is it? Is it 1776? Actually, we're recording this on Patriot's Day, which is the oh. day that Lexington and Concord happened, the 15th of April. Pretty, pretty, pretty interesting. That is actually yeah. pretty interesting. The shot heard around the world, of course. I, I always think of Schoolhouse Rock. Why not? Excellent. That's how a lot oh, of people so. learn their civics in there. Oh, that's how I learned it. Yeah. And you still don't know anything. No, and I, that's all I know. <laughs> <laughs> the shot heard around the world was American Revolution. <laughs> that stuff's so good, especially because it's all got like a disco drive to oh, a lot of the so songs. It's, it's, it's super cool. So fun. Operation Desert Storm began okay. in what year? Desert Storm began in 90. What year was the Dreamcast discontinued? Oh, discontinued yet. Ooh. Wow, that's a great question. I don't know how long. I, I honestly don't know how long it ran. I know when it started, but I don't know how long it ran. I'll say 2004. I hope it went longer than that, but I'll say 2004. What year did Guns N' Roses' first album, Appetite for Destruction, come out? I remember when this came out. Well, we'll see about that. I was in seventh grade, if, as far as I remember. And you know what's funny about those kind of things, Kyle? I, it was it was in seventh grade, unless that's when it got on my radar. Right. Slash when people my age started wearing the t-shirts and everything like that. But I'll say... Now, what year would that have been? I'll say 87. What year did AOL dial-up begin? <laughs> I'll say 96. What year did Squaresoft and Enix merge? Oh, great question. Oh, I don't want to get this wrong, though. For a lot of people, a lot of younger people might know, not know. Square Enix used to be two major Competing. Japanese like rival, arch rivals. Rivals, perfect, yeah. And then they combined in... Okay, they combined in 2000. And finally, what year did McDonald's introduce the Big Mac... Wow, great question. Uh, I'll say 1972. All right, let me see what you got most wrong. Okay. You did really well on this one. Oh, good. The one you got most wrong was AOL. The year wow. that AOL dial-up started, you said 1996. I said 96. All right. Well, let's go back then. I'll say, and it's and it's the most wrong, so I got to give a bigger window. I, this seems unbelievable. I'll say 92. Okay. You did really well on this one. Okay. Taxi driver, mm. Robert De Niro. You said 
1977. The date is actually 1976. So pretty good. Okay. Wow. 1976. Really early. Dragon Quest. You said 86. That is correct. Okay. In Japan. We didn't get it until 89, I think, okay. as Dragon Warrior. Nice. Wizard of Oz, the book, the bound book. You mm. said 1900. That's exactly right. It was 1900? 1900. Okay. Nice. The American Revolution. Lexington and Concord, mm-hmm. April 1775. You said 76, 75 is actually the year. That okay. 76, of course, is when we declared independence. Gotcha. Okay. You guys can go read about the Olive Branch petition and all that kind of stuff. We thought we would still stay within the fold at this point or at that point. It's not this point. Fascinating time period. Excellent. Time really period. like and so- really underexplored. Is it really? I would think it was one of the most popular things. Think about it. Like I'm talking about in terms of media, right? Yeah. Think oh, about yeah, dude. Name any other American Revolution piece of media from the last twenty years other than the Patriot or Turn. <laughs> name one. Yeah, I can't even think of any. That's like fucking unbelievable. That actually. is weird. That because is it's such weird. a ripe time. There's got to be something else. What else? I feel like I would know about it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, well, you would certainly know about it. Now, there is, I mean, I'm not going to talk in any detail about it, but Dagan knows that my my massive video game idea that I really want to do one day has everything to do with the American Revolution. And I think would be a really fun thing to explore in specific ways. And I'll actually talk to you more about that, Dagan, because we've talked about it in the past, but I have new ideas. Very about fun that. idea. Oh, you've added to it. Oh, yeah. It's evolved. I have an even better idea now for it. Oh. Like, well, it's, just, it's the idea that we had before, but I, I like what the what everyone's going after. I, I know. Oh, now. Cool. I know now. Oh, cool. 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 Operation Desert Storm. Mm. Began 1990. You would remember that because you were in high school. I was indeed. Dreamcast was discontinued. You said 2004. Believe it or not, it was discontinued in 2001. Really? April of 2001. Yeah. Wow, it didn't last long at all. No, two years. Two years? Two and a half years or so, <laughs> including the Japanese. That's release. a shame. I agree. Appetite of Destruction, Guns N' Roses' first record mm. after the split, of course, of Guns and Roses. That's where LA Guns, of course, came from. 1987. Correct. Right on. Now, I was reading about this. I didn't realize the album didn't really hit until 88. No one really cared about it in 87, which is pretty interesting. That is interesting. AOL dial-up. AOL's got really interesting history. But the dial-up, you said 96 originally, then 92. Very good. 91. 91? Wow, so early. And that was all running on DOS, as far as I know, because we didn't even have GUI stuff really at that point, with the exception of Mac and maybe Windows 3 or something. The earliest inception, yeah. Square Enix merged. You said 2000. It's 2003. So pretty close. Mm, a little later than I thought. Okay. And the Big Mac, you said 1972. It was introduced in 1967. Oh, my God. The Big Mac saw the 60s. Yeah. Yet. Wow. Yeah. All right. Well, not too bad. No, not at all. far off with the Big Mac. Not at all. I used to love Big Macs. I don't care. I know you did. I know you did. Because I told you, it. I have such a vivid memory of when you broke your arm and you were in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that mom brought you McDonald's and I was so mad because she would not get it for me. <laughs> That's so mean. I remember it so mom, what well. what were you thinking? Because like we went, you were at Brookhaven Hospital, I think. We went, yeah, and, and I Pat, was. And, and Patrick, the McDonald's was right there. It's still there. Yeah, right there. And that was like the McDonald's we always went to. The one by Hao Mei. Right, by Hao Mei, which is our favorite Chinese place. Yeah. And by Swan Deli, which is where I used to work and all that kind of stuff. Wallbounds, where Dagan used to work. Yeah. So it's like kind of a nice little little area where we have a lot of memories. But I remember going to Brookhaven. I remember it so well when you broke your arm because I was so upset. Mom, because you were like eating hospital food and obviously we wanted to bring you something good. Yeah. But mom would not get me like a, a happy meal. Mom. She like was just like, no, I'm getting Dagan McDonald's. Uh, we're going to go home and eat. I think you had to stay overnight or something. Yeah, I was there for four days. That's so weird. Your arm really got fucked up. Huh? Yeah, I really got hurt. That was a bad one. That ended my And that was also your right arm, wasn't it? That was my right arm. Yeah, that would have been yeah. really that's yeah. smart. I remember actually mom and dad yelling at you because it's oh, like, they were mad because you're you were so you're obviously so talented at art. You really could have fucked yourself. You know? Oh, yeah, man. Oh, it was it was bad. Do you think you could relearn how to draw with your left hand? 
Because um, it's, isn't it in your head? It's not really like a mechanical thing. Like, you know how to do it. So couldn't you treat, teach yourself if you really had to? I think it would be very difficult. But I think with the advent of working on the computer, I think like digital illustration and stuff like that would be because a lot of it, a lot of a big part of it is conceptual. Also, just the idea, you know, at least that's my approach. But no, it would be very difficult to learn how to draw with your opposite hand or paint traditionally, even work on a Wacom tablet or a Cintiq screen would be difficult. But now with the advent of the computer and sort of the way, you know, different methods of pushing and pulling shapes and it's not all hand drawing, you know, it's sort of a mixture of that and just other techniques. So the computer would help. Right. But still. Still very difficult though. Oh yeah. So thank God it all worked out for you. Well, well done. I really liked that segment, Kyle. Thank you. Yeah, We'll throw it back to you for wave nine. We'll throw it back to you. Okay. All right. I'll be ready. No, Dagan, the audience has asked us to talk about Interstellar. Interstellar, fantastic movie. Christopher Nolan directed, written by his brother, Jonathan Nolan. Came out in 2014. $165 million budget. Big budget movie. $700 million, just a little bit. Big budget. Holy Just a little bit under $700 million in worldwide growth. So made a healthy profit. Stars Matthew McConaughey, John Lithgow, Anne Hathaway, Michael Caine, etc. A who's who? Matt Damon. Matt Although Damon. you're not really supposed to know that. That was one of the things I really loved that is that you didn't know Matt Damon was in the movie. The reveal. Oh, right. they never, he was never in any trailers. I not watched as a I recall. Of tra- no, I don't the think. The funny it. thing about Interstellar was that I didn't even see it in the theater. It wasn't until, oh. it was actually Nick Scarpino at my old company, kind of funny, who sure. was like, dude, you have got to see Interstellar. You will love Interstellar. You will love Interstellar. He, he said it to you. me for like a year. Did he really? And I remember seeing it. I, said, I didn't see it until like the fall or winter of 2015, like a year after it came out. I'm like, all right. Wow. So you saw it on DVD for the first time. Yeah, I rented it on like PlayStation Store or something. And then, yeah, I fell in love with Absolutely. I actually remember I watched that Wolf of Wall Street and Gone Girl back to back to back. And those are three really good movies. Very good. Very good trilogy. Right. So I was like, it was like, I remember that so well. because I'm like, wow, it was like in a 24 hour period. I was like, this is incredible. That was 2015 ish. Yeah. Like late 2015. I think I was doing it. So. Wow. Dig, what do you make of Interstellar before we get into what the movie's about and all that is incredibly deep movie. Yeah, it really is. Incredibly scientific. Really, really up my alley personally just based on my layman interests what do you think of this movie interstellar i think it's stellar oh hey how's that for a lead-in well you know i called now that you and i have watched it together i've seen it three times now and also one of my wife helene's favorite movies which is kind of odd actually for her because she's not a huge science fiction aficionado but she really likes this movie she loves this movie actually and i think what appeals to me the most about this movie before we get into the story i had to think about this a little bit not too much because it strikes me you know from the outset what i love about this movie one of my favorite science fiction movies i think all told but i love the combination i love that it's you know it's inherently a really fun science fiction movie filled you know filled with you know really awesome and you know oftentimes fact based scientific principle and you have the spacecraft and you have the robots but you know, that sort of goes along. Also, that's coupled with a really, really, for me especially, a really emotional human drama, a really emotional human, you know, a story really grounded in human emotion as well, especially the father-daughter dynamic, which really speaks to my heart. And I love that this movie is both things. There's very few movies with both of those things. There's very few quote-unquote cool science fiction movies that also have that human element i think that's something i always loved about the original star wars trilogy you know and i don't think the star wars trilogy has the human element as much as this movie does this movie is really grounded in emotion and that's what i love about it yeah i agree with you i think that for all of its science fiction trappings it's really not a science fiction fiction movie which is so funny because 
inherently it is sci-fi. It's about space and it's about spaceships and it's about traveling through wormholes and about the end of the world and all that kind of stuff. But right. that's not really the theme of the movie. It's basically just the trappings of it. I, I've often talked about science fiction and that people like my girlfriend, Erin, really has a hard time getting over certain things about science fiction can't see through the aesthetic in order to see what's underneath it. Like she does, she just refuses to watch Star Wars. She refuses to watch Battlestar Galactica. These things, Star Wars, not so much, but Battlestar Galactica is another thing where it's really not about space. It's a, just happens to be where it takes place. It's about humans and this weird story and Very robots and all that kind of stuff. comparison. Perfect. Yeah. So I feel like people have a hard time getting over sci-fi because then it's automatically a sci-fi movie, just like a Western, but it's not really, it's not really a sci-fi movie because it's like you said, it's great. It's science fiction, inherently fiction, but with Kip Thorne, who we're going to talk about extensively, his inclusion in this movie as scientific advisor makes it not so fictional. Everything in this movie, according to him and according to the, his book, and I've read his book called The Science of Interstellar, is is possible, or at least theoretically possible, right? So it's pretty interesting. But here's what so the movie's fun. about for people that don't know. This is the way I would assess it. And Dagan, you can jump in if you have anything else to add. Sure. So you're introduced to Earth it takes place in somewhere in the middle of the 21st century. It's really pretty nondescript. You can kind of figure that out by watching certain things and making certain assumptions. And Earth has been decimated by what seems to appears to be global warming related crop failures and dust bowls, very similar to the 1930 and blights on all these crops and everything's kind of going to shit. And we are introduced to a situation where like most of the crops have permanently failed on Earth. And corn is basically the only staple crop that is still being grown. And it happens to be grown by this farmer played by Matthew McConaughey, who's Cooper, but he's really not a farmer. He's kind of like an old NASA test pilot. And you learn basically drips, dribs and drabs about what happened in the decades prior that there seems to have been a massive war. It seems like most of the Earth's population has been killed. There's little references. I actually wrote them down. He says something like Cooper says something like we were too busy fighting over food to care about anything else, indicating that his generation was fighting in some massive conflict. And there's another indication where someone says that there are no more armies, indicating that either there's a global government, which is possible, the American United States doesn't exist anymore, or it could be that there are so few people left alive that no one's fighting anymore. There's just no reason to be fighting each other anymore. Right. We're introduced to Matthew McConaughey as a scientific-minded person when he's chasing an Indian drone that has probably been flying on its own for about 10 years. He downs it. He tries to take parts from it, basically. And so we're introduced to his scientific mind through that. But basically, Matthew McConaughey, Cooper, and his little daughter, Murph, or Murphy, who's played by Jessica Chastain as an adult, who's played by Mackenzie Foy as a child, they kind of have this connection based on scientific love of science and kind of this intellectualism while... Coop has another has a son who's like more of a farmer and more of the logical, you know, kind of take care of everything. He's played by Casey Affleck, kind of like just taking care of everything. Kind of, so they have different relationships. I, I, I was actually drawn into that, too, about how, from my perspective, it seems like Coop cares a hell of a lot more about his daughter than yeah. about his son. Yeah. And you, see, you, you kind of get that. Yeah. Whether or not it's because he feels like she needs more care and his son is just basically more on autopilot could be another thing. I have no idea. But we learn about all of these interesting things that lead to basically a scientific like gravitational distortion that is read in binary that leads them to this kind of nor old NORAD base that ends up being like the remnants of NASA. And you find out that NASA is going to space and has been working on this program called Lazarus in secret for potentially decades. Lazarus, of course, is the biblical story of the man who was who died and came back to life. And so what ends up happening, and I'm, I'm going on a little bit, but what ends up no, happening that's okay. You're doing great. is that about 50 years prior to when the movie takes place, 
mysteriously a wormhole appears next to Saturn. They they identify this this gravitational permutation this per, you know this this weird anomaly out by the gas giant, and they realize in examining it that it is a wormhole to another galaxy somewhere else. And so they send probes to explore it over time, and then they send 12-man missions through the probe that we never really meet any of them except for one. And the manned missions go to these 12 planets in various systems that they think could inhabit life, and three of them send back signals through the, the wormhole that they have found something promising. Coincidentally, all three planets are in the same system. So Matthew McConaughey, as an old NASA kind of test pilot, is sent to man the ship, and Hathaway is a scientist on it. There's some other people on it. And they go through the wormhole and they basically pursue three of these planets in the same system to see if humanity can be supported on them. And it's about the trials and tribulations that they experience going to these planets and how it basically ends up in some sort of time loop where Matthew McConaughey it has it ends up being some sort of ghostly almost apparition from the future based on the bending of space and time and the access to a fifth dimension and all this kind of stuff. He's basically been warning his daughter from another reality that they can fix this problem and find another planet and they kind of send data through this. So, so that's cool. basically it's so cool. Basically the premise of the movie. Yeah. yeah now you summed it up well. Dagan, I'm curious how you feel. I don't really even know the answer to this, which is a little strange. Okay. But I'm curious how you feel about space and space travel because I am really have a lifelong love of it. And this movie fills me with so much awe. As I've said to family and friends many times and I said on the show and various shows, I would absolutely go into space. Like if they sent me and they were like, you might die, you may never come back. All this kind of be like, I'd absolutely go. If you they would were, go. It would be worth it for you to still go. I would. I, I just couldn't imagine saying no to that. Yeah. The only reason you would say no is because you have one life to live. There's a little bit of selfishness. You want to remain tethered to Earth. But that kind of adventure yeah. and that kind of the humans branching out into space, it's really an unheard of thing. And I would definitely go. And I have this weird fantasy of how how would they realistically send Colin to space, right? Yeah. And my whole thing is like maybe there would be a Mars colony and eventually like the third or fourth or fifth wave of people that are sent there, like they want to send an historian at some point or someone to tell the story of the, of the colony. Okay. And that's when I would get sent. That's pretty cool. I never heard you say that before. Because they wouldn't send me. Like, why would they send me? How much it would cost millions of dollars to send me to space, right. hundreds of millions probably per person. Oh and God, can you imagine? just based on the weight of getting off the planet and bringing all your shit with you and stuff like that. And and so you'd want to send scientists and physicists and chemists and all that and geologists. Obviously, you'd want to send all that first. Sure. But eventually you'd want to worry about everything else. And that's how my fantasy kind of plays itself out. But how do you how do you do you care about space? I, mean, I do. We love Star Wars and all that kind of stuff. But do you like space? Yeah. Beyond science fiction, just real life space and real the idea of real life space travel and space exploration i actually think of it kyle this way i actually think that it's mankind's responsibility actually i think it's just the fact of having you know you know again inherently that human curse of being able to ask all the questions and having so few of the answers when you think about outer space anything beyond the earth that we know and all of the questions and all of the possibilities and all of the unanswered, you know, all of the, those unanswered questions and all of that vast, you know, seemingly, you know, infinite space. I think it's I think it's humans prerogative to get to the bottom of, of as much as they can and to explore it and to explore the, you know, the bounds of outer space and to really dig into what's out there. I think how can, it's almost unimaginable to not do that. In other words, to say like, whatever's important is encased on this orb, 
that we're floating around on and everything else doesn't mean anything. How can you, you know, how that's like almost like drives that idea drives me crazy that there would be like a laissez faire attitude to outer space. I think it's our, I think it's our duty to do as much as we can in space. I know it's at great cost. I know there's a lot of problems on, on our planet in many ways, but I still think there's always got to be that built in, you know, that built in funding and that built in sort of curiosity. I think that has to be, I think that has to, that, you know, our thirst for knowledge and answers has to be quenched by exploring outer space. I, I, I think it's unthinkable not to. Yeah, I hate that shit, too, where everyone's like, well, yeah, we don't know what's under the ocean and we don't. And it's like, well, go fucking look, right, go see. Like, if you want to go look at the ocean, that's not precluding anyone from going into space. I'm totally in agreement with you. There is a laissez-faire, almost blasé attitude towards space to what a lot of people, which I think is strange. No, that's really weird to me. Beyond all of the practical application of going into space and finding places for us to live and answering answer, you know, getting answers and figuring out the secrets of all of the things we don't understand, dark matter and black holes and the, and bending space and time and all that kind of stuff. Beyond all of those applications, just the sheer curiosity of it. Like I always question people that are not curious. Like you don't, you're not, even if you don't want to go, even if you don't want to spend the money, even if you think it's impractical, it's incredibly dangerous. There's like very little return. It's like a generational sort of thing, which I think is another thing that bothers people. Right. Like it's a thing where you have to add a little bits of knowledge over long periods of time because yeah. it's so hard Who and so knows? expensive and so big. There's no promises that anything right. is going to yield any kind of results. Right. But just the idea of like, you don't want to, you don't, you're not curious. I know. That's Something that's a little strange. To unimaginable. Because it's the next frontier. It's the final frontier, like they say in Star Trek. And it's true. It's we we explored the oceans and, and I'm not saying we've gone underneath and gone and, and, and know all the animals there, but we've we've gone all the continents and we've we understand what's going on. And that was only a few hundred years ago that we were circumnavigating the globe and discovering new islands, and new lands, and new peoples and stuff like that. Well, we've pretty much seen it all at this point. And now it's time to look up and look out. I agree. And to to what you had said and what we had just discussed a moment ago, yeah, there isn't a promise of a return. It's really difficult. One of the things that I, I love about Interstellar is that it deals with time, which is a thing that people don't look at as the fabric of reality, but it is. Time is part of reality. It's a fourth dimension. It's the dimension that you can't see but that you exist in. Sure. And there's probably more than four dimensions if you, you know, and we actually get into that with the Tesseract, which indicates that there's a fifth dimension. So, to me, I like that we as humanity invest in really small ways in order to understand what's going on next. Newton figured out gravity was a force hundreds of years ago, and that's really relevant in this movie, for instance. And it was his knowledge that added to someone else's knowledge and so on and so forth. Einstein with relativity, that's 100 years old, a little bit more than 100 years old at this point. So I get frustrated because people want immediate returns, but generational investments in this kind of stuff, I think is exciting. Yeah. The only thing that I get bummed out about is that I just know that we're going to miss all of the really cool shit. Right. And that's, that is a bummer. That is, but you still have to put it into play. You still have to put it into motion. We're, we're not going to be able to travel faster than light in our lifetime. We're not going to probably see a wormhole. We're probably not going to land on anything other than Mars and the moon in our lifetime. Right. There's a bunch of, we're never going to leave the system. This, this stuff could be thousands of years away. Right. Having drives that can go really fast and start mining asteroids and stuff. It's, it's a bummer, but you have to, Add to the knowledge. Absolutely. I think that's the biggest problem because humanity as a whole, not only impatient, but just kind of lacks that forward thinking, that extreme forward thing. It's always like, I, I don't even know what's going on tomorrow. How can I think? You know, you have to be you have to be curiosity, curious. You have to be forward thinking. You have to be patient. 
You know, it's exactly what you said. I think that's the biggest inherent problem is that lack of immediate return. But still, and you know, even in all that, the fact that there's, you know, not more curiosity is odd to me and not uh, more so international cooperation. I know there's some international cooperation. We have things like the space, the space stations and everything like that. But just to actually come, I think that's another that's another perk for humanity and the planet is just that's a exploring space is a great way not to sound hokey but it's a great way for us all to come together with a common goal you know because that doesn't belong to anybody or it belongs to everybody right and you know think about it too kyle everything we know this is a this is a maddening concept but everything we know is based on such a small you know it's based in such a small space in such a small place you know the fact of just you know, being so limiting, limiting ourselves to such little knowledge and just kind of staying in this little box seems so odd. You know, what can we possibly find out there? It's unimaginable. It's, you know, it could be anything, could be everything, you know, it could be nothing. Who knows? But it's, it's worth, you know, you gotta, you gotta check it out. Right. It's, it is maddening in the sense that again, the vastness of space is unimaginable the the distance from the earth to mars is real like you can say like okay this is the distance but it's unimaginable even if you know the number so just imagine going out to jupiter and saturn and uranus and then imagine going out to the kuiper belt and the oort cloud and then imagine leaving the system and then imagine going to the next star four light years away then like the the galaxy i think is something like fifty thousand light years wide meaning that it takes fifty thousand years for a light to travel across the galaxy that's insane that's insane. which is bonkers and that's the galaxy right and then there are tri- really infinite galaxies with trillions of stars within them the universe is expanding at the speed of light we know that from the redshift that's how we know that the big bang is true and all that kind of stuff so not only is space huge it's constantly expanding and there is the element of time again that i was talking about before yep because there's this question in the drake equation which is a really i don't know if you know are familiar with the drake equation but it's basically this no. equation where you plug in different numbers okay. and you come up with an answer i think he was a harvard mathematician that was basically saying like what is the likelihood that there is intelligent life in the galaxy and so it's basically like all of these numbers like what is the possibility of you know a species becoming evolutionary independent what is it their spacefaring all this kind of stuff and you plug in different numbers there's really no right answer and then you come up with a number some people come up with a number less than 1 some people come up with, an, which indicates basically like we're so rare that there's less than a one, there's less than one intelligent species per galaxy wow, on average, okay. right? Right. And that's called the rare earth hypothesis, which is really fascinating. People can go read about it. It's basically, basically saying there are scores or hundreds of things that happened in sequence or in very specific ways that allowed earth to spawn life. Wow. And this is so uncommon that it's entirely possible there is no intelligent life in, in the galaxy. And then there are people that are being like, this combination is so common that there's hundreds or thousands of, of species in the galaxy that the are intelligent. The idea of that is unbelievable. But the thing that everyone forgets, and this is a really important thing, is time. And again, we've been narrowing this down. But what I mean by that is we've only been looking for like 100 years. Yeah. The universe is 13 billion years old. The galaxy is probably somewhere between 7 and 8 billion years old. The system is 5 billion years old. So in that time, we've only been pulsing out evidence of our existence for about 100 years and been looking for 100 years. So it's entirely possible that there are a bunch of other species that exist at different times and we just all miss each other, right? <laughs> That's <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yeah, to think about it that way. 
It makes sense, though. And that's why, yeah, that's why everyone's like, well, where are the aliens? Because that was, I think, the start of the Drake equation was the question, where are they? Where is everyone? That And that was also the question of time travel, of if t- people can travel back in time, then where are the time travelers? Right. And that's those are really fascinating questions to, to think about. But the time, the essence of time frustrating our ability to know is what this movie gets around. And that's what I love about it so much, about distorting time about traveling through time, about traveling back in time, about indi- about doing all sorts of things and really causing time paradoxes that we really don't understand how they would fit into the, the way we understand physics and relativity now, but that data out of black holes and stuff might be able to help, which is another thing that we deal with here. And I think that's totally fascinating. So it's absolutely fascinating. Now let's talk about the characters, okay. if we might. And let's sure. start with Matthew McConaughey as Cooper. How do you feel about this character and this performance of Matthew McConaughey? Again, we talked a little bit about it. I really love him. And I'm curious what you think of the, of Coop. I think he's I think he's a fascinating character. Very, you know, like many of Matthew McConaughey's characters, very appealing, very likable character. You kind of see him, you know, and a, a big theme of this movie call for me. I haven't read too much about other people saying this or feeling this way, but a big, you know, sort of underlying maybe under a layer or two is a theme of, you know, especially I know this from being a father, is sort of that conflict of your kind of fatherly duties versus your, or the the conflict between being a father versus your job slash your duties as of your profession. You know, I see a little bit of a conflict there with him because he's very, you know, the Cooper character is very passionate about what he does and what he did. You know, you know, he was a NASA pilot. Now he's a farmer, but he has a real passion you know, the movie opens basically revealing his great passion for, you know, outer space and for flight and for all these things and sort of handed out all those traits down to his daughter who has very similar passions about outer space and space exploration and science. And so he's a very passionate character. He's a good dad. But, you know, one thing that speaks to me, especially early in the movie, is how reckless he is when they're pursuing that Air Force drone with his kids and the driving through the cornfields. He's... um. He's sort of another. He's sort of very childlike. In fact, putting his kids in danger, they almost drive off a cliff, chasing this thing. It's he's almost strikes me as like a a sibling rather than a father in a way, but also really warm. You know, I love seeing the relationship between him and his daughter, and I love seeing the the way it eventually plays out. But seeing a little bit of the push and pull, and sort of the emotional toll that having to leave takes on. You know, takes on for him. As far as, you know, being a hero and trying to save humanity and thinking of his children, but also in that same breath having to leave his children. So that's really where the character, you know, in his interactions with his father-in-law, you know, he's obviously, you know, he's widowed. So that's where it starts for me with that character, with the Cooper character. Yeah, it's interesting. He almost is like a peer of his children. Which yeah, is cool. that's what it seems like. And yeah, I like how bullish he is and how enthusiastic he is for his daughter and his daughter learning things. There's a really great scene when he goes to the school because she brought in a textbook that indi- from like basically before the fall of man when we all were telling the truth and knew that Apollo missions happened and she, basically that they're thinking that we never landed on the moon and they have all these new textbooks. They talk about the old federal textbooks and stuff like that. So we see a little bit of his like carelessness with her because they're like, well, what are you going to do about this? Because it seems like they have some sort of almost Lois Lowry giver type society where they choose professions for people ahead of time and then yeah. send them because there's just not enough people and not enough resources for everyone to do what they want. Like you, you have to be a farmer. If you you have a mind for math, you're gonna be an engineer, if whatever the case might be very communist, almost very, very 
socialist in its design. And he basically like just brings her to a baseball game or whatever and like isn't worried about it. Right. And almost living in the moment, which is really weird because they're they're dying. Their, their species is basically dying. So I like his whole arc. The thing that frustrates me with him, though, and his relationship with Murph is that there are plot holes, significant plot holes in the movie that people really complain about in the middle of the movie. And I don't know if you've read any, any no, about this or whatever. I don't think I saw anything about this. There's people think that certain things happen like way too conveniently. And I actually agree because the movie's almost three hours long. It's almost as interstellar could have probably been two movies. I really would have been interested if they split it into two and actually took like five or six hours to tell the story because it is true that they conveniently find the binary. They conveniently find the NASA base at NORAD. Yes. They conveniently find Matthew McConaughey. Matthew McConaughey's old professors there conveniently. They conveniently need a pilot. They can like, so I understand all of that, but it, I guess Definitely. it can be explained in the Tesseract that they knew that this was going, that all this oh, was lined up. Already. That's why they were so nearby to each other from the beginning right. and all this. That's possible that that's an explanation. Okay. I never for that. thought of that. Okay. But I do, I, I do want to acknowledge that the relationship between Murph and Coop reveals like, and how fast everything happens with them reveals plenty of plot holes in the movie and the way the movie moves. Yeah, I, guess. I get that. I completely get that. Now, Kyle, I don't know if you want to, because we're talking about the characters right now. Right, I, have, I have sort of a litany of questions that I want to put to you. Yeah, we not, can about- not necessarily on not necessarily answerable questions, just more of, of your opinion. Now, right, what right. do you make? But I don't know if you want to answer this yet. We can move it to the end of the no, show, please. but I'll ask you. What do you make of the whole thing where the teacher and the principal are in the school and they're sort of debunking? The lunar landings, you know, the moon landings and stuff. What? Do you, why are they doing that? What's your theory behind why there's a revisionist history being presented there? My theory is, is that either. Well, so there's two interesting things about this. OK, it seems like it's a world government, but there are American flags in the NASA headquarters and on their their suits. Now, these suits could just be old and at the baseball field, right? right? And at the baseball field. Right. So there's they, he talks about paying taxes and all this kind of stuff. So there's some sort of system. But my theory is, is that like, again, it's a totalitarian system and they might want people. That's at least my my guess yeah. is that it's a totalitarian system of some sort. Maybe not, you know, maybe not malevolent, but certainly like it's not the way it is now. OK. And my theory is, is that they just want everyone to focus on like the here and now and yeah. that there really are no answers up there anymore. Discouraging everything. Else. Right. That's my theory is okay. that they just want to control information and they want to kind of revise things. What's funny is that you can look at the moon with a pretty strong telescope now and see evidence of the moon landings. It's not even like a thing that can possibly be debunked anymore because you can fucking see the landers and stuff like that. So and, it wasn't and, Stanley and the tire tracks and stuff like that. You right. can see them. Right. So it wasn't a Stanley Kubrick film. Right. Exactly. It wasn't a Kubrick film. But that's my theory is that they just want to control information. I mean, that's a very common dystopian theme because that's the thing that I think this this movie edges on but doesn't really touch, which is that it is a dystopia. It's just not the dystopia that you see in like the Hunger Games or some sort of like really calamitous situation. It seems like people are still those that are alive seem to be still living and cooperating. Right. There's one thing that I, I made note of that I thought was interesting is that multiple times John Lithgow's character, Donald and McConaughey are drinking beer and this yeah. indicates to me that there's like some sort of economy people are still making goods that are not necessary to survival great point they're playing baseball there's a famous thing with the New York Yankees where it's just like this ragtag group of like nobodies playing wherever when the dust when the dust storm comes in so there's like you can read weird things into their society like he has an old laptop that is still connected to some network at some point like he turns it on in the beginning before they're even chasing the the Indian drone so 
there's like all sorts of weird shit yeah. in the movie that they don't really quite explain where you can kind of glean answers on the situation. You know, it's, it's so funny. I didn't even think about that. There's still gas-powered cars. The beer means there's still got to be barley and hops and stuff like right. that, right? So Presumably it's there's, there's yeah, because they're talking about not all crops are failing, but like your cash crops or like your stable crops. Yeah. So those things might be growing still. And people are manufacturing beer, manufacturing beer bottles, manu- like putting them in. Like, so... Yeah, you're right. Like he was driving like an old Dodge Ram or something like that. And it's all rusted out and stuff like that. But it's still gas powered. Yeah. The computer still works. There's still electricity. Still electricity. So there's we don't really quite know. They're so isolated in this rural environment that we don't really know. Do you wish that the movie revealed a little more about the situation, the backstory, maybe showed you a perspective, a more planetary perspective, at least somewhere else besides, you know, wherever we are, mystery spot in the United States? Do you wish that it sort of expanded its story a little bit and told us, gave us a little more info? Or are you cool with where being a little more cryptic? I'm fine with the cryptic nature of it. I always want more. It reminds me a lot of Red Dawn. It reminds me a lot of Jericho, where you the lore is really the most interesting part of the movie in some way. Yeah. And I would love to have seen more of that. See, I differentiate with you somewhat in like you want like the global cooperation, everyone going into space together. There is that. We have the International Space Station. Surely right. we will continue to do those kinds of things. But I like in our real world here, I want America to lead the way. I want us to stick our flag in the, in Mars. I want us to stick our flag in the moon. Right. I want us to really claim these things. Like I know that that's like really unheard of and actually illegal based on current, you know, law, UN law and stuff like no one can own anything in outer space, but I think we should be doing it. Like we as a society, if right. no one else wants to fucking do it, then we'll do it. You still want to harken back to that old model. There's something to be said for that though, because you know, the whole thing, the whole space race, or whatever you want to call it now, being competitive sort of lends to the impetus of getting it done. And sort of, you know, that the whole, you know, phenomenon of making it a competition sort of drives it. Right. It could drive it. I think we need that again, in a way. I think when the Chinese land on the moon, which is going to happen in a few years, that we're going to wake up again and realize, like, what do we, why are we, we landed on the moon in the 60s, we don't need to go back there necessarily, but what are we doing? That's going to be the spark. Right. I think, and it's ironic, another communist kind of, science cold war with these guys or whatever but you know i i think it's great if we cooperate i also think it's really exciting if china you know it would be unfortunate i guess but if china went to mars first i still think that would be really exciting but i would expect them to stick their flag in it i don't expect them to stick a flag with like the earth on it sure Sure. that's just my take on it i would love for us to like dominate and like be the ones that go we don't have to hold people away we don't have to give people we can give people access and people information we should share everything just like when we went to the moon we sent the world countries around the world including the soviet union we sent everyone rock samples right Right. like we can still continue to do stuff like that and i think that's great so that everyone can study themselves and they have all the information and the data we don't have to hold that back but we should be doing it as a society so i was really interested in america still undertaking this alone and and i so i would have loved a more bird's eye view of what was going on there but I don't need a global view I think it's interesting that it happens through an American lens all of it and it would have been cool to see like how we clearly won I guess whatever happened but it's unclear he mentioned something about how mission control they're asking he's like one of the kids is like what drone is that he's like it's an Indian drone their mission control went down 10 years ago about the time ours went down Okay, And so it's also indicated because they go into space that there are all these stranded things in space, too, including like, you know, satellites and space stations and stuff like that. So like that haven't been that they haven't gone to right in a long time because there's no need or no, no way. Right. Right. So there's all that. I don't know, though. I don't know that I would want more. I always want more, but I don't think the movie needs it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with you on that. It doesn't need it. No, it would be cool. But yeah. 
Is there anything else you wanted to say before? No, we, yeah. and you know about that whole backstory thing. I couldn't find any information like people even conjecturing or saying, well, they did reveal this in the script, even though it's not translated to the movie or there was that there were cut scenes. There is no information about where does where is this farm? Where is Coop's, you know, Cooper's family's farm? What what is the backstory to this blight and this dust, you know, this seemingly incessant dust bowl? What is going on on the rest of the planet? There was no info on that. So it may have just never been written. That seems very Nolan-esque. It does. It reminds me of McCarthy, too, with The Road, where you don't really even know. It's actually identical, where you don't know what happened. We assume global warming were the were both, were both the causes of both catastrophes. But I don't know. I mean, no, I have no idea. No idea. It could have been war. Or there could be nuclear I was fallout wondering about or that whatever, too. Yeah, whatever the case might be. I have no idea. Yeah, yeah. But they, I mean, they again, they do reveal that it was a very violent near past. They do, they do reveal that. Right. But, like literally fighting over resources and stuff like that. But I don't know. It's just I'm most interested in not what happened as much as like how it stopped and how like everyone went about their business. Right. After that. Right. With seemingly like very few people. You That's the more interesting thing. about. You it. know, what's interesting, Kyle. I mean, they never allude. There's no ev- there's never any allusions to this in the film, but it would be interesting to know if there was some kind of global conflict and you would assume global conflict would take place or, you know, target the major cities. So the fact that this is a really rural suburb somewhere, you know, it kind of leads you to almost think like, well, maybe something, maybe all the fallout was in the cities, all the destruction, all the casualties, whatever it was, and whatever is left around in the suburbs, the farmers, and they were the ones that he endured. But I don't know. But it, the movie has me feeling like that a little bit right. sometimes, you know. Yeah, it's interesting. You don't even know how many people are left alive or anything like that. You no. see like caravans of people leaving the town. People still going to school, all of that. I actually really like, you know, another thing that I should say about the aesthetic of this that I think is brought up and actually is most encapsulated, from my opinion, in the house and certainly in that school scene you brought up is just the the incessant dustiness and dirtiness of their environment and how they accept it. In the school, they go in and there's just dust over all the tables. Like they're not even paying any attention to it. It's really cool. It's like an accepted part of their life. Sure. And I love how they introduce like them setting the table with all the plates upside down. And all of that, like they just, it's just part of their routine. Yeah. And I love how I'm a huge Ken Burns fan. Ken Burns did a documentary called The Dust Bowl. And they actually take scenes from that documentary and put them into the movie as if the documentary is being told about their reality, which I think is super fucking cool. Oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah. I knew it was, I knew it was inspired, you know, very inspirational to Christopher Nolan, the documentary. Have you seen that documentary? Yes. I've seen oh, it. Wow. I've basically they, seen all of it. But they take actual clips from it. Yeah. So he apparently got permission from Burns to take actual clips from it. And it's unclear if in the beginning they're just referencing the Dust Bowl as a parallel or whatever. But at the end, you realize that they're using those clips contemporaneous to the time because it's outside of the model of his house on the space station, on Murphy Station, right? They call it, or Cooper Station, actually, they call it. Right. And he thinks that it's named after him, but it's actually named after his daughter or whatever. And that's so a great, that's a great moment. Right. It's awesome. And so I think that they kind of play with your expectations there, too, where it's kind of like crossing the boundary where Ken Burns took these scenes and are like, no, like if you just remove them from the reality of the Dust Bowl, this is actually these people are actually speaking about this situation in this world, which I think is super cool. And I like how they tie that all together at the end with the TV outside of the house. Yeah, that is a lot of fun. What do you think about Murphy's character? Again, played by Jessica Chastain as an adult, played by an actress named Mackenzie Foy as a youth. Yeah. This character is really frustrating to me, but incredibly necessary to the way the, the, the movie moves forward. I'm curious what you think about Murphy. Yeah, she's a great she's a great character. I love the fact that she's sort of a little, you know, like a little mini version, especially young Murph is a little mini version of her dad. And it's intimated that she's named after Murphy's Law. 
and she always thinks it's a bad thing. And then Matthew, the Cooper character explains to her that that's that Murphy's law is not a bad thing. It just means what's, you know, what can happen is going to happen. That's not necessarily a negative thing, you know. And I love the character that she's sort of like a mini version of her dad. She wants to be just like her dad. She really looks up to him. She, he, whatever he is, whatever he embodies and his passions were really translated to her. And like you said a little bit earlier, Kyle, it contrasts with the son character who's a little more dutiful a little more detached from his dad, maybe less like his father, very respectful. There's still a loving relationship there, but, you know, clearly the apple that fell nearer to the tree was Murphy as far as the Cooper character. And later on, you know, it's heartbreaking to, you know, she loves her dad. You know, she, you know, the mom had passed away. She loves her dad and the dad has to leave and she doesn't want him to go. So it has that very base human element to it you know, that heartbreaking thing where the father, you know, the, the parent has to leave, you know, is being called to duty and the kid is the casualty of that. You know, the, the relationship, the father-daughter relationship is the casualty of that. And it's heartbreaking. And later on, the older character of Murphy, it's, you know, you're sort, it's sort of a reprieve for your emotions watching the movie, especially someone like me with a father and daughter thing is, you know, really is taking center stage. It's sort of a reprieve to know she went on to be a successful scientist and engineer and she kind of followed in her dad's footsteps. And when that's revealed in the movie, it's almost like a breath of fresh air. You're like, oh, wow, that's really neat. And she's working for Professor Brand, who was her dad's, you know, mentor in, in many ways. And everything, I don't know how much we want to get into spoilers, but no, please, a lot of, no, you know, don't spoil it, spoil it. heartbreak, you know, the heartbreaking things ensue because she's the one who finds out that Professor Brand and his plan for human colonization outside of the earth and for saving humanity was, you know, only half truthful. Right. It was fundamentally flawed because they, the information needed to finish the equation cannot be garnered outside of an event horizon. So right. it's, it's literally impossible to even see it. Right. But he was lying to everyone in order to get them to cooperate for plan B which was for them to basically accept that they're going to die and Earth is going away, but that they can at least get humans in the space. Exactly. And knowing that that was going to be the whole thing all along. And, you know, Murph is sort of put in the middle of that situation. And, you know, I should also say, I, we can't forget to say this. There's a promise between father and daughter that the father, you know, the father promises his daughter that he'll return someday. And it gets into a very emotional thing of, well, maybe I'll, you know, when I come back, I'm going to be your age, you know. And there's a lot of anger. Murph has a lot of anger, especially a little girl version of Murph has a lot of anger. Even when she becomes an adult and becomes a scientist herself, there's a lot of anger at her dad because he never returned and then different things happened and he, you know, fell out of touch. And, you know, they, they're communicating with each other during the course of the movie through sort of videos that they're sending back and forth, basically. And, you know... Again, the the ending when they finally do reunite, spoiler alert, but when they finally do reunite is absolutely heart-wrenching. It's heart-wrenching because, the, you know, it's... And I don't think I've ever seen this. I've seen sci-fi movies, even sci really good sci-fi anime series that have dealt with time travel and characters sort of aging at different speeds and stuff like that. I, it's not the first time I've seen that, but it's the first time I've ever seen that phenomenon of a child coming back to watching you know, his child basically die, which was just heartbreaking. You know, they finally did reunite. The promise came true, but she was that many years, you know, she had aged a lot more rapidly being on Earth than he did in space. So that's what I always think of with the Murph character. You know, I always think of that. And I didn't know that was Ellen Burstyn at the end. Did you know that? No, I didn't. That was like, 
the make is like unbelievable. I mean, that's um, that's an unbelievable performance. Not only is the makeup and you know the prosthetics and everything unbelievable, but that the performance is just so touching. And the whole thing of like, I want to be here with you now, and she's like, No, you go. Like, I, I'm with my family now. You know, and she has her kids and her grandkids there, and it's generations of people that he missed. It's just heart wrenching. It's super interesting. I wish that it didn't move so quickly through some that of ending. stuff. Not only that, but just a lot of the kind of exposition about their relationship and and how we actually miss a lot of it. When they go to the Tesseract, they lose, I think, another 60 years or so in that in that instant, right, by crossing the event horizon or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it's like 59. Yeah, I think you're so right. I, so they had lost. They, it took them like two or three years to get to where they were. And then they go to Miller's planet and lose another 24 years. And then I think that when they cross the event horizon with TARS, they yeah. lose like another 50-something years. So all of this shit is amazing. That's what's so interesting about time as currency in the movie, which is something I always talk about in real life. Time as currency. I think time is real currency for people. I don't think they look at it like that. But in this, it's especially poignant because it allows the timelines to get totally skewed. He returns, I think, they're not on Earth anymore. Actually, this is an interesting thing that we should bring up now is that okay. Earth's done. Like, I, I think that's one of the things that they only touch on briefly in the movie or maybe not at all is that they basically accept that they can't fix earth when you find them again just to be clear that you know that they're on a space station they show the theory is that if you if you have a circular or spherical space station and it slowly spins at a certain speed then you can create artificial gravity and stuff like that so they create they show you to make sure you know like they're not on earth like earth's done yeah and then they also are like, you know, now Edmund's planet, which we'll talk about in a minute, is actually the right planet and go and try to let's get this show on the road, you know, and see if we can make this happen. So that's another interesting component is that winning so-called winning in it when they kind of reunite and everything's fixed. It's actually not fixed. Like there are maybe a few thousand humans alive at this point. Maybe. Right. You would have to assume. Yeah. Because the situation on Earth was dire when they left and then 100 years passed. So was it 100 years? He's in his 30s when he leaves. Right. She's a child when he leaves. And then when he comes back, she's almost 100 and he's 135. Right. Right. So, right. yeah, it's almost almost a century has passed for Earth. That's So you have to assume that the problem has not been fixed and that they got off the planet because they have the data from the black hole that they sent through the Tesseract. And then they get off the planet. But it's unclear what the status of humanity is. It's unclear. It seems like they're doing OK. The kids are playing baseball. The station seems like it's like well built and all that right. kind of stuff. The baseball thing. Right. 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 Now, Kyle, can we piece together? I'm thinking now, can we piece together exactly when that all transpired? Now, of course, Cooper's in space and all of this went down sometime when he was gone. So can we piece together by just knowing that Murphy is there surrounded in her deathbed seemingly with her kids and her grandkids? Can we sort of figure out how long after... Not only after Cooper left, because you know that Murph is on the space station with Dr. Brand for a little while, too. So can we piece all that information together and see how much longer did the Earth last after Cooper left? Yeah, I don't know. I wonder if we could figure it out. The other thing that's weird, too, is that the data is sent to Murph as a little girl. That's right. There's a time lapse there. So I don't know. I think what the Tesseract thing. So we keep using this word. This is a thing that I barely even understand. I can't understand But it's basically the visualization of a cube like i think it's like what a i think it was explained i was even reading on wikipedia i think they basically explain it like a tesseract is to a cube what like a sphere is to a circle or something like that something yeah yeah, something like weird it's some it's geometry it has nothing inherently to do with space or anything like that 
It, like that, it's just, it's literally a principle of geometry. I think. Is it have. a cube square? Is it a cube cubed or something? Yeah, like it's that? something like that. Like yeah. a cube that is endlessly like I think unlaid on itself. Okay. To create like I think it's something like that. So I think that they take it. It's like a cube. I think that's being unfolded. We have a lot of smart people that can listen and and let us know. What I it is. tried to understand and I couldn't. Yeah, what Colin was saying too. I think they they do say that in the description, which even confused me more. The tesseract is to the cube what the what the cube is to the square. So does that that's mean what it's it a is, cube right. times it four? I have no idea. Yeah, so I think that's what it is. I think it's like unfolding in infinite ways the cube, like the sides of the cube to create new geometric shapes or something like that. Yeah. But whatever. I mean, I'm so right-brained. To create that more stuff surface is, area. I don't know. I honestly don't know. I was, I try. <laughs> it's like, I'm, I'm actually surprised. You, you're a lot smarter than me. So I'm actually surprised that you about didn't that, figure that. But more. no, no, I'm, we're both, we both share a right brain and I, I can't. Yeah, it was I beyond me. Yeah, no, geometry is definitely a thing that's not going to work for me, but it's interesting in that that information is sent. So basically what happens at the end, we'll talk more about Tars and Case because I think they're really interesting characters. Oh, but brilliant. Tars is sent through the event horizon. And the so the physical idea here, as I understand it, and I, I, I think I know a little bit about this, is that inf- nothing can escape a black hole, even information. So nothing, even the information of you going into the black hole cannot leave the black hole. I think... The theory is, is that when you cross an event horizon, the person looking outside of the event horizon, looking at you, will see a static image of you because the information beyond the event horizon cannot be portrayed outside. That's mind-blowing. Because the gravity is so strong, light's not escaping it, and any of the information about it is about what's happening beyond it cannot be escaped. That's why in the movie, the answers to the equation can only be found on the other side of the black hole, but they cannot get the information out. Right. And so they indicate that maybe TARS which is one of their robots, can get across the event horizon and quickly send the information out before, like, as it's crossing, basically. And they think that that might be possible, and that's not even the way they work it out. Even the, light can't leave a black hole, right? No, that's why you can't see them. The only, way you can, the only way you can see a black hole is the light around it being sucked in, but you can't see the black hole itself, right? Like, you can't see. You can't see so in it. So crazy. You can't see through it. It's a rip in space-time. If you think about a piece of paper, like, like laying on a flat horizontal plane i really think it's just like a a hole popped in it where if you like put if you put like a marble now on the piece of paper it would not only it wouldn't necessarily be drawn towards the hole but it would create how would i put this it would create like some sort of tension on the hole where it would start rolling towards the hole and that's like the gravitational pull of it gotcha and the pull is so enormous that the hole is basically it's like basically straight down it's basically you know carving up space time in such a way that it can't be escaped right So there are in real life, as far as I understand it, there is a lot of information in mathematics that they know that they can get out of a black hole or that they should be able to get out of a black hole that can answer a lot of questions. Because the problem with relativity, as I understand it, is that once you cross the event horizon, nothing is true anymore. That like anything we know about space doesn't work, that there's like something unrectified about the math. And that's kind of at the heart of the movie, too, is that they actually get that information. That information ends up saying that information ends up indicating that gravity is able to be per- perturbed across time, which is a really interesting thing and probably not true, but who who really knows? That they were saying, like, we really, because of the paradoxes that it would create and stuff like that, that we can't go back in time, we can't affect it, the grandfather paradox. You can't go back and kill your grandfather. Right. Because then it would create all sorts of, it can't, literally can't happen. It's not a thing of, like, we don't know what would happen if you killed your grandfather. The idea is that you literally cannot do it. Right. Right. And so this indicates that actually you can. You can go back and send signals through gravity 
to past timelines because gravity remains consistent no matter what i guess that's i, mean, I guess that's saying, the right? theory right or, or like that's the idea of the story i don't know if that's true or not that's kind of how i interpret it so like he's able to send little gra you know gravitational permutations or per permutations that end up being morse code sending the data that the robot has gotten translated into morse code that's the data they need to finish the equation it's fascinating you know so that's the one thing that i'm lost about is that adult like Chastain Murph, I don't think ever receives that information. I think that this is like a repeat of the timeline. I think that that's it. I think that that's in what I've read. And I've actually not read too much because I don't want other people's theories infiltrating mine. Right. Okay. Or like what people think and stuff like that. But I did read Kip Thorne's book, which I highly recommend. Kip Thorne is the scientific advisor. We haven't talked too much about him, but he's the scientific advisor. Christopher Nolan found him. He actually was a scientific advisor on contact as well. He was a contemporary of Carl Sagan. I absolutely fucking love Carl Sagan. So for people that don't know, Carl Sagan was a really famous American physicist and astronomer. He's responsible for the book contact, which was made into a movie with Jodie Foster, which right. is about uh, contacting aliens and stuff like that. And actually has a very similar story about how it's really not alien. That's the other thing too, is that there are no aliens in this. It's actually humanity helping itself. Yes. Putting a rip in space time in the future. That's the weird thing that I don't really, I, I can't quite wrap my mind, wrap my mind around all of that. Future humanity help. Future humanity understood that they could maybe save themselves by finding the necessary data right so at some point one of those timelines puts the rip in space time in the in near saturn right in order to draw them towards these planets it's it, it's a little strange like i don't because you think it's extraterrestrial at first right exactly but it's not it's not which is the exact same thing with contact but like you're saying when that just it is keep cycling whatever happens in this story over and over again presumably the timelines happen constantly Right. Okay, like right. are happening next to each other. I think that's kind of what they're indicating at the end is like the timelines are happening concurrent to each other. There might be infinite ones, which I think is the unfolding of the Tesseract. Like, and what's also interesting is that in that black hole, Matthew McConaughey and the robot are existing in the same space. Like they can talk to each other. Yeah. So I don't quite, I don't know that I quite understand all of that. It makes sense. I didn't even understand it in Kip Thorne's book, really. But it makes, and I read that a long time ago, to be fair. It's not fresh in my mind at all. I read that like three years ago, I think. Yeah. But there is something lost there where I'm like, I'm not really sure who that information is getting to, who put the rip in space time. It seems very circuitous. I don't know. It seems like very complicated. I think that that's it like is. a really valid argument against why the movie might be not as great as I think it is, is because that's a little like, I don't, I'm sure we'll get comments that will explain it from people's perspectives. I but, hope so. I'd like to, yeah. I'd like to be edified a little bit, but you know, what's funny about it is, you know, isn't it intimated that the black hole phenomenon itself is not created by humanity, but humanity figures out how to make the Tesseract component of it, right? In order to understand and manipulate whatever is happening in the black hole. Isn't that what, isn't that what it's saying? I guess. Uh, I Which is very strange, actually. Well, it's just weird in, in the sense that this technological advancements, like just putting a, a wormhole there. I'm like, all right, so you put a wormhole here? Like, this is really complicated. Can't you just figure this out like I, I don't you know like that's that's the weird thing too where I'm like this is all really really advanced shit like it is it really ripping is. space time to go from one place to the next instantaneously there's that really cool thing which is another scientifically accurate thing where the wormhole is actually a sphere a sphere and you can see through it at certain angles so there's one really cool throwaway line that I actually think is really neat where he asks him about like do we even know what's on the other side And he's like yeah we actually have we know where we're going we actually see it we know like the whole layout of where we're going because from a certain angle, you can see right through it and see where you're going. Yeah. 
which is so wild. I love that. But that's it's, kind of a throwaway line. They don't really dwell on it too much. It's crazy. I love I love the sort of notion of having a wormhole as a shortcut, quote unquote, in space, especially knowing, you know, if you're limited by technology, like we humans could never reach these places if we were going on a straight path. If we had to go all the way there. But here is the wormhole. You know, I could see future humanity sort of helping current humanity by saying, here's a shortcut there. You're not going to be able to get there the real way. You don't have the technology for it. You don't have the lifespan for it. You're not built for this. But here's a shortcut to get there. Check it out and see if there's inhabitable places by taking this shortcut. I like that. But and I, I kind of wrap my head around insofar as that much. But beyond that, it gets to be like, you know, just. Yeah, and, and showing, you know, what a wormhole, how a wormhole works with a piece of paper by showing you with a piece of folded piece of paper and everything. But the, uh, as f- beyond that, my understanding was sort of getting shattered. <laughs> yeah, it's super cool, too. That watching them go through the wormhole is really cool. I always I'm always fascinated by how different movies like deal with hyperspace or deal with whatever the case might be. And I really love how they deal with the wormhole here where the it, they're only in it for like a 30 seconds, which is super cool. And like all their machines shut down. There's that apparition that appears that ends up being McConaughey in the Tesseract in the future. Of course. And all that interesting seeing, I guess, one of the timelines or whatever, one of the possible timelines. But I love how they end up like it's not violent. Like they end up just going through it. It's shaking. The lights go out and stuff like that. But then they just are in the other like the other system. Like they just end up in the other system. It's amazing that matter could go through whatever that was. And those are, you know, again, again, Kip Thorne being very. I should explain a little bit more about Kip Thorne for people that don't know, because, again, the scientific advisor on the movie. But he's a Nobel laureate physicist. And he actually won the Nobel Prize in 2017 after the movie, after he did all this work, he won a Nobel Prize in physics. And he was a consultant on this. And. Basically, I think him and Christopher Nolan had an agreement where like they are not going to do anything that can't be possible in this. I think the thing that yeah, I think the thing that people have the most the biggest problem with is the the ice clouds on man's planet that are basically hanging in air. And that doesn't really make any sense. I think he explains, as I remember a little bit in that book, but gravity should bring those down. Right. So there's that's a little weird. But otherwise, there was an agreement. And apparently him and Christopher Nolan used to get into arguments because Christopher Nolan wanted to do a bunch of shit. And Kryptonian's like, this is, these things are impossible. Especially with lights, like light travel. Yeah, that's the one frustrating thing about space travel and kind of humanity's place. We were talking about how I think Sirius or Vega or one of those stars is like four light years away, the closest star to us. Right now, that would take us thousands of years to get there, right? But at light speed, it would take us four years. So still, when we're looking at the star, we're looking at it four years ago, right? We, we're never seeing it contemporary to now. I always forget about that. But what I'm frustrated by in terms of just reality is that physicists say, and that's why wormholes are so important, we can't travel that fast. Like, it's just not possible. In fact, like, I think I think weight becomes, like, infinite and time becomes infinite when you reach, when a photon is going that fast. Like, matter can't travel that fast. Gotcha. Like, something with mass. Right. I think, like, that doesn't work. So that's another thing that, and so I think Christopher Nolan wanted to do something like where they travel really fast and Kip Thorne's like, you can't, like it's, it's impossible. The, the way we're going to be able to, I think the way we're going to be able to travel through space, and this is why it's so frustrating what we were talking about earlier, we're not going to see the fruits of our labor probably for a really long time, is that we're going to have to probably figure out ways to rip space and time. Like we're probably going to have to literally figure out ways to sever it oh, and so. go to other places. And what's probably going to end up happening from what I've read is that if we do that, we're probably going to have to do that and we're not really going to know where it goes even. That's or like time if you, travel, If you can it? get back, it's... Yeah, the, it's it's traveling across space and time. Yeah. So you don't really know where it like. So that's the frustrating thing. And I love that Kip Thorne kept Nolan grounded because Nolan's groundedness is what makes his movie so important. So if this movie didn't share that, 
with his other movies, I think it would have been incongruent and annoying. That's a very good point. Excellent point. And I know they did get in arguments over it. Yeah, he had two main... He had Thorne had two main sort of uh, things to adhere to, two main rules to follow, right? And that was it. And you had to see, you, like, you couldn't, you couldn't base anything on fake science. Was one right? It had to be based on real science. And the other one was that. What was it? What was number two? I think I have it here somewhere. I'll find it while you talk about the next thing. Yeah, because it's it, he's an interesting cat. I wanted to really give him a shout out because he's so smart and he he gained a little bit of mainstream fame. Thorne did through this or whatever, but. He's a legit physicist. This isn't like some hack physicist or some like even there's even some like nuclear physicist that, that what's that Japanese guy's name? He's like a famous physicist that's on. I don't know. Star Talk Radio sometimes I think. Anyway, he's like really into aliens and weird shit like where some people don't really take him incredibly serious even though he's a PhD and stuff like that. Right. This is not really that kind of situation. This is like a legit Nobel laureate guy. But you did you find the answer? Is he still affiliated with Caltech? Is he still? I think so. I think he's like I think he's a uh, emeritus. As far as I know, it's unbelievable. I can't. I, I don't can't think he's imagine being that intelligent. I really admire it. You know. For, well, people say that thing, and I yeah. just want to throw this out there real quick. There is. We're always so impressed with left brain people because of the mathematics, the physics, whatever the case might be. Yeah. But they don't have right. A lot of these people don't have right brain intelligence at all. Which is funny. And like, if you're extreme in one way, so much so that you understand that shit. You probably lack in other ways. You think? I don't think that. Yeah, because I think that there's only so much your brain can do. I think there's some really intelligent people that understand everything. But yeah. I don't think that that's as common as people think. I think that it, I don't know that it's a coincidence. I don't know if this is mean, but I don't know if it's a coincidence that like when you meet someone who's really nerdy about something like really, really in the mat. This isn't universally true. I'm not trying to be insulting or whatever. Maybe they lack some sort of social awareness. Maybe they yeah, lack yeah, yeah. some sort of. You know, even a lot of um, autism or high functioning autism, I think, comes along with a lot of the higher end understanding of things that normal people like you or I just don't get. Yeah. And so I think that there are little deficits, not that that not being autistic is a deficit. But the point is, is that I don't think you can have it all. No. Well, you know, that's the thing of one thing coming at the cost of another. That's just basic human logic. Right. You know. Right. No. So Dr. Kip Thorne called two guidelines for Nolan and his and his crew to follow on the film would be that nothing would violate established physical laws and that all wild, this is an interesting one, and that all wild speculations would spring from science and not from the creative mind of a screenwriter. <laughs> right. Which is really funny. And like Colin said, that keeps it grounded in a reality that you could appreciate. You know, that, that you know, and the dramatic elements and the creative elements come from somewhere else in the film. And the combination of the two, again, that's what makes this movie so special, I think. I agree. I absolutely agree. Let's get into a couple of the more. Ca I want to just talk about a couple of the more characters before we get any further into sure, the, until we'll talk about some of the locations. And I think we're doing a nice job of kind of covering all of the, the angles here. We mentioned John Lithgow before as Donald. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about this character. I like this character a lot, but I also am disappointed that we don't really learn about his fate. I don't think I could be wrong about that. No. Yeah, we really don't. So do he it. dies at some point. It, it, Casey Affleck might say something in passing because he's the one that keeps sending messages. But I like his character, Donald. I yeah. think he's a good one. What do you think about him? I think he's great. I mean, you see him as, you know, you find out he's early on in the movie. You're like, OK, this is either either Cooper's dad or the wife's the dead wife's dad. You find out it's Cooper's uh, father-in-law. Right. So it was the wife's father that passed away. So already you have a little sympathy for the character and you see that he sort of operates 
you know, again, in the Cooper character, I don't want to play this angle up too much, but, you know, he's very childlike. He has a lot of wonder. He's sort of running around. He doesn't even take it seriously when the kids are getting, you know, in trouble at school and not doing well and stuff like that. So you see the Donald character is sort of the caretaker. And he's a little more curmudgeonly. He's a little more serious. He's probably what the family needs with, uh, you know, the father not acting maybe fully responsible. You know, although he's a loving dad, you know, maybe he's more the practical caretaker. And that's what I get out of the character. And you get a little exposition out of him as well. You know, he works as a little bit of the audience surrogate, at least early on in explaining a few things. And that's where it's not. What, what do you like about him so much? Kyle? I don't know. I feel like he's soft and I don't mean that in a bad way. I feel like he's like the most human character in a lot of ways. Like he's a little gruff and gruff is a great word. You know, he's a little grounded and he's he, he's very worn. And, he you know, we were talking about it because I'm like he his character is us like our age. Yeah. You know, like it's supposed to I think he's supposed to be like our generation or maybe even my generation with this movie probably taking place around 2050. Right. Exactly. And right. I was always fascinated by that. So he must have seen so much and he saw a lot of it later in his life, which I think is even more interesting. Like he lived he lived for decades and whatever was normal. And he's really maybe the only one that did, which I and, and that you see in that, you know, with Kane, Michael Kane's character, too. Great they might really be the only ones that remember what it was like. I mean, even. McConaughey again with the the line about fighting for food and stuff it seems like he was drawn in at a young age militarily because they actually do mention multiple times too that NASA was decommissioned or thrown away by the American government because they refused to drop bombs remember that they, they say that they yes, refused to drop bombs that's on their right you know what yes and there's another reference to nuclear bombs too where I think McConaughey refused to be a pilot or something or didn't want to whatever was going on so his normalcy was stripped from him for a long time, but I think Donald's character is interesting because maybe half of his life lived in, was lived in a normal world. Right. Uh, before whatever the fuck happened happened. Those are our touchstones. Him and Professor Brand are our touchstones right. to that. Exactly. And the Brands, of course, we have to talk about too. Anne Hathaway playing Amelia Brand, Michael Caine playing Professor Brand, both actors that are used in other Nolan movies pretty prominently. Yeah. And uh, what do you think of these characters as well? The Brands I find a little frustrating, but necessary. Anne Hathaway's character annoys the shit out of me. Does she really? Yeah, I don't... First of all, she's she almost fucks them on Miller's planet. Right. Bad. I mean, that was a catastrophic mistake. Yes. Because. All right. So that was aggravating. Actually, you're right. Because so <laughs> we're jumping around. But I, the assumption okay. is, is that you've seen this movie. So you kind of can follow us. I, I don't think you should listen to this if you haven't seen this movie. No. Watch first. Watch first. But on Miller's planet. So there's three planets. Miller's planet, uh, man's planet and Edmund's planet. These are all in the same system. They realize they only have enough fuel and time as currency. They only have enough to look at these three planets. These are the three planets that have been pinging back information that is positive. Like, you know, whatever 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 information they need about the atmosphere and the temperature, whatever the case might be, the, the proximity to the, to the black hole. Right. There's potential for human life on these worlds. Right. And she go, they go to Miller's planet first, which is closest in proximity, and they're getting positive signs from Miller, who's a female scientist who's sent to this particular planet, they land on the planet to realize this is super cool. The planet is super close to Gargantua, which is this mega, super giant, super massive is the technical term, black hole, 10,000 solar masses. And it lies right on the outside of the event horizon going around this black hole as if the black hole was once the star of the system. And the planet is a water planet. And that was what was so frustrating to me is that they immediately land and they should have realized there's something not right about what's going on here because it's a water planet where they land and they're like, there's nowhere for her to even land. And this is where the signal's coming from and stuff. So they should have, knowing that when they landed on the planet, it was something like, what, seven years per hour or something like that when they yes. were on the planet? Yeah. 
because they're so close to the black hole, oh they should have God. immediately just touched back off and been like, and then this go, is it. So cool. Like, we got to go. Now, and, they were looking for mountains, right? Because what happened was, didn't the initial Miller, I guess, when he found this planet, was pinging back information about there's mountains here, but I guess never translated back that that's not a mountain it's a it's a that's perpetual a tidal wave gigantic tidal wave that actually killed him before he could say that's not a mountain it's a tidal wave so they're looking for mountains and then they think they see it and then they're like that mountain's moving right and it ends up being a miles high perpetual tsunami that circles the planet constantly because it's so close to the gravitational pull of this ten thousand solar mass supermassive black hole that it just, I guess, based on its rotation every few hours this thing is just going around the planet it's horrifying what an unforgettable set piece it's probably the most memorable image in this movie for me personally. Besides, you know, the black hole and the wormhole is super cool in the Tesseract. But earlier in the film, I mean, that image of that giant, horrifying, miles high tidal wave. Because there's this really cool pan. I'm not much of a cinematographer, like at all. Obviously, I don't really know, notice this stuff too much. But there's this really awesome pan of the wave when they're going up in your light and it just keeps going. Like you think, all right, there's the top, there's the top, there's the top. Over like probably five or six or seven seconds. Yeah. The thing is just panning, Great panning, shot. panning, panning, panning. <laughs> and suddenly you see this massive wave miles high. And it's, you know, Amelia Brand's fault that they're stuck on the planet for all of that time because she tries to rush to get the data. But that was like the data off the corpse. And I'm like, why? Like, the, I'm like, the corpse, the, what are you talking about? Right. Who cares? Right. There's the data. It's the coming data at is you. that the way that there's a water planet <laughs> it's coming. That's the data. Right. <laughs> and the other cool thing, Dagan, is that there's so much water on this planet being a water planet, but they're able to stand in it, yeah, meaning like that either deep. it's shallow or there's so much water in the wave that is going around that they like it literally, you know, it's like, um, before there's a tsunami in real life, the water from the beach washes away into the ocean. The, right. the, the water actually recedes and then comes around. And that, that recession is so pronounced on the planet that like they're able to stand in like ankle deep water. It's amazing. That's a great point that that wave is consuming so much of the water. That that's what's leaving it so shallow. Right. It's a great point. Is that the pull is so severe. Michael Caine's character, Professor Brand, I think is more interesting. His lie is at the center of everything going on in the movie, but it's such a necessary lie because otherwise, as he says, humanity, and as is said, humanity wouldn't work towards the common goal if they knew they wouldn't be the, the beneficiaries. If some like mysterious fucking embryo, fertilized embryo and another galaxy is going to be the beneficiary and they're never going to know who you are, and what you did. So he lies to everyone and says that his scientific equation will allow them to get this mega giant NASA craft off the ground and at least save thousands of people. But it's a lie because he doesn't have the data, including his own daughter. Right. He's lying to his daughter, too, which is a little weird that no one like his daughter is supposed to be really smart, but she didn't see the, the necessary data missing from the equation. That's another plot hole. Yeah, that's, that's a, a bit weird. of a plot hole. You're right yeah. about that. But, you know, with the Professor Brand character and Amelia, her name's Amelia, right? And the Amelia Brand mm -hmm. character, that's another father son uh, daughter dynamic in the movie. That's sort of side by side with the Murph. Cooper. Right. If you, you know, it's it, largely it is a little bit of a movie about fathers and daughters. I think know? so. Yeah, for yeah. sure. I think so. I think so. So those characters are pretty interesting. And then you have Matt Damon, who we'll talk about on Man's Planet, because he's like one of the only, he's the other character you really don't meet and aren't supposed to know, as we said, is in the movie. We talked about Miller's Planet already. Man's Planet's the next one. We go to the Ice Planet. Pretty cool. There's like a weird thing going on on the planet where there's like suspended ice clouds and like almost like two surfaces. And man is basically claiming that like underneath the surface that they're on is where there's like biochemical, you know, ingredients necessary for life. And it's warmer and there's oxygen. He's lying, basically. And this is one of the things that I thought, you know, what are the themes? We talked about the, the father daughter relationships and all that. 
But I talk about some of the bre- the themes, which I think is like bravery is one of the themes and cowardice is one of the themes mm. because there are multiple cowards in the movie and multiple things that happen that show a cowardly slant towards what's happening. And man, who's basically the scientist at the center of the Lazarus Project is like the biggest coward of them all and basically falsifies his data just to get rescued, which is fucking wild. It's crazy. Based on like everything he knows about what's going on, like he understands the stakes He's traveling all this way. He he knows he's on a suicide mission, basically, and then he gets scared. Right. He's 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 brave enough. He's courageous enough to be an astronaut on this perilous mission. Yeah, and then something, but just not all the way, like a Cooper. Right. It's very weird. He goes all this way. He can't get back. He says something really awesome too, where he's like, it just. He says something like, "It figures my planet is like the shitty one." Right. Right. Like, right. like of course, my plan. I'm the one who organized all this, and my planet sucks. You know. And I I thought that was super interesting, but he lies to them and and. His lie, it's so interesting because at, on one hand, you have the lie of Michael Caine, yes. the lie at the center of the movie that's so necessary. And then you have man's lie, which contra- like, which is basically a contradiction of the lie, which basically almost ruins humanity's chance yes. of survival. So one man's lie almost saves them and one man's lie almost ruins them. It's right? a great point. Which great is pretty point, interesting. Huh? Very interesting. And man is just a coward. He's just a coward. And he just wants to get off the planet. Yeah. And, He's the and, complete antithesis of Cooper. Right. And I, I guess it's easy. We would never be in these positions, but... I couldn't imagine being a coward in that situation. Like, you have to just accept the reality of what's going on. Yeah, after And that. just be like, you drew the short straw, you're on this fucking ice planet, and you're going to die. Right. Now, just send the information back so they don't come. You know? Right, exactly, right. I mean, it's horrifying. It's actually a horrifying reality if you put that, you know, yourself in that astronaut's place. But, yeah, uh, very profound. But yeah, of course you 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 volunteered. You were courageous enough to volunteer for the mission. But yeah, again, like very human thing, like just realizing that he wasn't made of the sterner stuff that was was required required of him for that. Yeah, it's, and it's set up in such a interesting way too, because when they land there and he's he's cryogenically frozen, what they what they call over and over again the long sleep, which I love. And he basically says that he was he cried. It's a really great scene because he's like hysterically crying when he gets out so happy to see anyone else and he would ex- he expected to die he didn't set a wake-up date for his cryogenic chamber oh, so he was gonna die eventually that i was like oh my god and it's it's so shitty that he eventually he has all this fake data he has all this fake telemetry and then he basically tries to kill them and it's and, and tries to steal the ship basically yeah get, and tries to strand them there right because there's a because there's like all these landers and then there's like the main endurance ship and all that kind of stuff in orbit so he's trying to basically get to that he almost fucking blows that ship up so they they're, so they're stranded without that and then there's that really cool scene where you know, they match up the spin, which is a little unusual, but but possible as well. Yeah. And what ends cool. up being so interesting is that Edmund's planet, which is the third planet we only see a little bit of at the end, ends up being the right planet. And there's a contradiction here, too, where McConaughey Cooper seems so on top of things, but it's actually his fault that they don't go there in the first place. Because then this is where there's like so much blame to go around. This is why it's so interesting, because okay. Amelia Brand is in a relationship or is in love with Edmund the man character and no she's in love with Edmund she's oh not that's in love right with she's in love with the Edmund character who we never meet Edmund's dead we never see him right Edmund sends his telemetry and then he dies at some point right we never really meet him but, right 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 but he's further away and, and has a greater fuel cost and McConaughey's like we can't really trust what you're saying because we know you want to see him and she admits because this whole undercurrent of love and his love tangible and his love important, which it ends up being kind of in the Tesseract. Sure. And she says, like, there's we can't really erase that component of me wanting to go there. It ex- that a component exists. But but his telemetry is the 
and his data is the most promising, but he, but McConaughey ignores that and they go to the wrong planet. So there's something else there as well, because at the end you find out that it is the right planet. She's actually on that planet with no helmet, which is an interesting. Yes. So it's oxygen rich and all that. I think, I think she's there with no plan. And at the very least, there's like a set, like they have a camp an encampment there, whatever his encampment was when he died. And then whatever she brought with him as well. Exactly. And he, she, he basically goes back to. Which was what I told you. I'm like, there's a possibility of some sort of sequel here, although I don't think that they would do it where he goes back to Edmund's planet and finds her. Well, he that's where he was heading, right? Right. That's we don't end. know if he gets there. We don't right. know what happens. Right. right. So there's that as well. But what did you think of these? I, I loved it here because I wrote it down like water, ice and then like a good planet. But what did you think of the different planets, like the different I types? loved it. I mean, it really works on a, it works on an entertainment level just as a set piece thing. I loved how gorgeous the water, you know, the how horrifying and interesting it was with the shallow water with the you know juxtaposed against the giant tidal wave and then later with the ice planet like you said had intimated already it was sort of this you know they were like cloud-like ice structures but like two levels and there's certain pans in there in the whole matt damon you know arc where you could see the lower ice level through the giant it almost look like ice bridge structures. yeah they're flying almost in between it which is interesting gorgeous yeah. just be really beautiful really beautiful stuff you know, really, you know, again, works on such an entertainment level as well, you know, just as far as the, those memorable images and the cinematography, which, you know, shout out to the cinematographer. I always I'm always going to pronounce this this guy's name wrong. He has such an awesome name. Now, what's interesting about the cinematography call is historically, Christopher Nolan has one cinematographer. For, I think all of his films, even dating back to his very earliest films, Wally Fister, but he was off. I guess in 2013 slash 2014 on his own directorial debut on the movie Transcendence, which I've never seen. Actually, That's supposed to be a good one, too. Is that supposed to be a good I film? I think so. Yeah. So this cinematographer that came in for this was Hoyt Van Hoytema, I think his, his last name was pronounced. But what a wonderful job he did on this movie. Just gorgeous. And they came up with a lot of, remind me, well, eventually we'll talk about all the cinema, you know, the special camera and cinematography tricks and special effects and a lot of practical stuff. We'll talk stuff. about them right now. I mean, this you makes... Wanna, you yeah, want to so do go, it now? Yeah, go ahead so and kick it So a lot off. of the film call was shot, I'm sure you know, was shot on 70 millimeter IMAX. And the goal there was to shoot, you know, to make it a lot of the film feel like, not just on outer space, but the Earth stuff as well, to make it feel like it was shot like a space, like one of the NASA documentaries. And they even um, sort of improvised this strange, and I think it was the first time they did it, sort of a handheld version of the IMAX camera, which historically is very big, has very heavy film, actually. And they made this really cool handheld IMAX for all the close quarter, like, interior shots. So they could actually film on 70 millimeter, even, you know, for the medium shots, the interaction, all the human interaction on the, aboard the spacecraft and all that kind of stuff, which was really cool. And what I learned about this movie was a lot of the special effects. This is this is unbelievable. This was staggering statistic to find out for me because I had never really heard of this before. That they shot the lion's share of the special effects before they actually sh actual shot the principal photography. And the idea there was to get the special effects done, get them polished, and then they projected them. They projected the special effects behind the actors for filming the scenes so the actors didn't have to perform against green screens, which I was like, what? That's that's like such a backwards way of doing things. But very, if you think about trying to lend a realism to a film, what better way to do it? Yeah, because there's so many complaints. I mean, obviously most prominent with the prequel Star Wars movies, but just like when you watch footage of people acting in those movies or in some other movies that are very special effect heavy, and it's just like them acting 
to by themselves surrounded by green screens and crew and it's just right it draws out horrible performances which is i think why a lot of people think like hayden christensen was terrible in in star wars and some others while he's really not a bad actor so no you know even natalie portman who's you know not only a daughter of long island but also a very capable (laughs) actress like she was terrible in those movies too so a lot of people a lot of people think that that's the reason and maybe he was really familiar with that and, and wanted to not that you know, it would have been a shame to have someone like Matthew McConaughey or John Lithgow, although he's not really in any of the special effects, but Matthew McConaughey or Anne Hathaway or whatever, not be able to extract the most out of them. Absolutely. You know? And they give very grounded performances. I have to say the acting is excellent. And also the environments and the settings and the characters within those environments and settings are feel very grounded. So they really achieved their goal with that. And I'm sure that came at great cost as well to do it in such a, you know, such an opposite way to how it's normally done. The other thing I would say is just the amount. We'll get to the robots, which I really want to talk about the robot characters. They're, they're so awesome. But also the fully fabricated and hand-constructed spacecraft interiors. Just from, you know, from A to Z, there was just a lot of practical effects and practical. And, you know, also the miniatures. You know, one-fifth scale sometimes to one-fifteenth scale, I think. Some of them are huge. Some of the miniatures, quote-unquote, I think they call them maxiatures or something. Because some of them were like 45 feet long, you know, especially like the one fifth quarter scale stuff. But all the spacecraft, the lander, the endurance, you know, they had really miniatures for that, but they were massive. In fact, some of them were so massive that they can mount really huge IMAX cameras on them. So that really speaks to really a lot of inventive production methods in this film. Yeah. And to be fair, a lot of flexibility and experimentation with such a budget oh of $165 million, God. which is huge. a budget that only a few people can can really demand. Massive. And what's so funny about this movie, too, we we, fa- we failed to mention this at the top, was that yeah. this was a, re- a vehicle originally that was being without people assumed Spielberg was going to direct. And he was that, interested and, at yeah, first that Jonathan Nolan was actually the Nolan involved in this movie. First, Jonathan Nolan wrote it and Steven Spielberg was supposed to direct it. And then Spielberg was distracted with other shit or wanted to do other shit. And then Jonathan was like, well, obviously let's do a little nepotism and get my really brilliant brother, Christopher in here. And which should have been obvious from the beginning. And that's how they kind of came together. So especially after Inception. Right. Exactly. Right? I mean, yeah, because this is the movie he did movies and then he would do a Batman movie in between all of them. But this was the first movie after Inception that wasn't I think it went I think it went Inception, Dark Knight Rises and then Interstellar. I, oh, I, believe, I have his uh, filmography here. I'll look. Yeah, I believe that's what it was, because okay. I think he did a Batman movie in between like a bunch of stuff like The Prestige and then Batman Begins and then maybe Inception or something like that. Do you want me to tell you? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so it's 2002. Well, we have Memento. Well, Memento and then, yeah. Right. A movie in 1998 called The Follow- Following, which I have never heard before. Yeah, I've never heard before. Seen but then 2002 was Insomnia. 2005, Batman Begins. 2006, The Prestige, which the I Prestige, still haven't right. seen. I haven't seen that one either. That's about the magicians. That's Highly supposed to be recommended. Excellent, yeah, it's supposed to be excellent. Highly recommended. That's the one I haven't seen. 2008, Dark Knight. 2010, Inception, 2012, Dark Knight Rises, and then 2014, Interstellar. And of course, we know Dunkirk came next. Right, Dunkirk. And now he's signed on. I think he signed on to his next movie, but I don't think it's even been announced yet. Is it a Warner Warner Brothers film? I think all of his movies might be WB. He's tied in with them. I think so. Yeah. And he has his own, what is it called? Syncopy? So yeah, which is his production company. Yeah, yeah. And we were talking before. I had only read this on Wikipedia, so I didn't. I didn't even know this at all. And I assume it's true. Is that he was? You know, we were talking about Christopher Nolan could probably demand a forty or fifty million dollar paycheck to just direct and write and have his brother involved and do all this kind of I'm stuff. Sure. But he took only twenty million dollars against a twenty percent stake in the film. <laughs> Holy moly! So what that means is that he was basically. It's like when you get a book advance. And you would either owe that money back to the studio if it wasn't accumulated, but anything over that, you would get basically 20% of the rest of the money. So the movie made 
So he had $20 million up front and they made $700 million. So he made like $150 million on this movie. Can you fucking imagine? Risk how much? well taken. Holy shit. Well taken. When you make that much money, I'm like, why would you even work anymore? Right. It's I guess passion. I guess I said I would still want to do shit, but I would probably just do whatever I want. Like I would just like be like, I'm gonna go back to school and be an archaeologist. Now. I know. I know, you know? exactly like, what I you mean. Just go I know exactly what you mean. Like it's, I would stay busy, but I'd be like, I think I'm done here. It really yeah. speaks to their passion. It does. For wanting to do it. You people know. people shit on the hyper rich, and I get that. But there is something like to what you're saying about it. Like when you have hundreds of millions of dollars and you still want to work, grinding to make a movie, right? Yeah, you not know? an easy thing, not an easy task. You can he, ruin yourself by making another movie because you're only as good as your last movie, especially the Hollywood notion of that, right? Right. And I think Christopher Nolan doesn't even use second units, as far as I know. Mm, I think I heard about that on Dunkirk or which something. Which basically means that he directs all of it. That's he's not even like, he's, which is so weird. Workhorse. So, you know, and for people that don't know, second and third units are the ones that go and get like all the scenes or all the pickups or whatever they need that aren't as important. Less important. Yeah. But it's, I think he directs, directly directs everything. I think you're right. So... Really interesting, like, uh, maybe that's why he disappeared. Well, with Dunkirk, didn't he say with Dunkirk, and this might be the big balls that Nolan has been growing, I think with Dunkirk, he did go to them and say, like, I want to make a, the movie without a script. Yes. Like, and did, they I were think. like, you can't, you can't. Yeah, no, that's, that, that's a bridge That's like too a bridge far. too far, Christopher. Bridge too far. Right. <laughs> You're Which almost is super there. awesome when you have the balls to be like, listen, I want to make this movie about Dunk the Dunkirk evacuation, and I don't want to use a script. Right? Like, we'll get the characters, and we're just going to see what happens. Right, right. And I Me think that's wild as hell, but. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> Can you imagine Hollywood, just, you know, traditional Hollywood notion of not using a script that must have scared the shit out of them? Yeah, if even Christopher Nolan can't get permission to, that, I, I, to do that, I assume that no one it's will impossible. get permission to do that. Yeah. It's also stupid. Like that, I love Christopher Nolan. Like, why would you do that? You know, it's I could so see why they go just off a storyboard, especially with a movie like Dunkirk, actually, knowing now, having seen the film, because it's not a dialogue-rich film in any you no, know, regard. No. So just going off of storyboards and shots, I could see, but I could also see the powers that be. That would be very disorganized. Like, How would you produce a movie like that? How are we going to prove this? <laughs> right. Like you can't, you can't produce and you can't produce it. Like you don't even know what do you need? Like what do, right. what, what am I supposed to get here? Right, right, right. What do you, what do we want to, but I do like the idea of just dumping so much money into a movie that like, like $200 million budget for Dunkirk or whatever, that's going to make its money back where you're just like, all right, I get like, we'll see what happens. But I think Nolan and Spielberg and maybe a few others are the only ones yes. that could, that could even Dane, thinking think about of that other. many other ones. What about uh, what's his name? I can't think of his name. Fucking Oliver Stone. Oliver Stone's one of a Pulp Fiction, like uh, oh Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, Tarantino's probably one that yeah, can maybe do that. Yeah, definitely. I don't know how everything shakes down with Tarantino now. I keep wondering about this with all of the um, Hollywood, you know, sex scandals and Me Too and uh, well, he had that thing with Uma Thurman, right? Where but, oh, did he really? Have well, something? where was he? Didn't do anything wrong, but it was something where he, I think, apologized because he kind of facilitated their him meaning or Uma Thurman because all of his movies are are that dude's. Whatever that Harvey Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. I oh, yeah. He, he was Quentin Tarantino. Now, Quentin Tarantino eventually became Quentin Tarantino, but especially early on, Harvey Weinstein was his champion. You know, I think, I think, and you would never associate Kevin Smith with this stuff, but I think Kevin Smith, too, early on, that was a big Harvey Weinstein was championing Kevin Smith, too. So I think there's something to do with that, but there was also something, maybe I'm confusing the two stories because there was something with Uma Thurman okay. on Kill Bill where she got like really hurt. Oh, and, I remember. And I think it has something to do with, with wine, like not anything Weinstein. sexual, but like some sort of relationship thing and some okay. sort of weirdness off of that. All right. But I don't think he did anything like, but he didn't you also say that he only wanted to make like eight movies or something and then be done? Yeah, what? he's definitely said that. And I think that this is the last one, he's right? Or, getting, or 10 or whatever it is. He's getting know. close. One or two more, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, I know. He's an interesting guy. I always wondered how the Harvey Weinstein stuff of, you know, the fallout affected Quentin Tarantino. I don't know too much about it. Yeah, he's been pretty quiet, which I think is wise, but he'll never make a movie better than Django Unchained anyway. You like that movie? Oh, I fucking love that movie. Yeah, I, the violence in that movie, the graphic violence in that movie is hard for me. The the blood, the scene where he cuts his hand. And yeah, his, sure, of do, course. Do, do you know that that... that do you know the story behind no, that? No, I don't think so. He really cut his hand no, during that scene and wiped his hand on the dude's face and they just kept rolling. No way. Yeah. Like they rolled and rolled and what? rolled and got that scene. Like he Holy yeah. shit. <laughs> no, I never do that. It's pretty cool, you know? Like it's to a, be in the moment and to know like, all right, we're we're doing this. Like DiCaprio is making an, a call on an audible. He's rubbing his fucking bloody hand on my face. He's first of all a genius. He is, but imagine being in the moment to be like, all right, like, Right to be have that that kind of chops. That yeah, kind to like of be like we're doing dedication. This. Yeah, we're doing this. This Holy guy's God. literally rubbing his blood on my face. He's the real deal. Yeah, he's the real deal. He's. Dude. We're getting way off track, but Di- DiCaprio is one of the greats. Oh, all time. And it's so fucking weird that that's true. I mean, if you think about Growing Pains and yeah. you think about Titanic. Oh, I mean, he was great in Titanic. But the point is, is that like I didn't. No one saw this coming. It's the same thing with. Uh, What's his name? Nightwing from Batman from the third Batman movie. Oh, um, who's also in a bunch Joseph of Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Yeah. Yeah. He's in. Isn't he in Inception? I think he, he is. is. Yeah. Yeah. Joseph Gordon-Levitt. He's fucking great. He's sort of, uh, you know, a Nolan staple. And yeah. what's interesting is he has a connection to John Lithgow, of course, from I didn't know Third this. Rock from the Sun. Oh, which of is course. so I wonder if there's some sort of relationship there oh. that got John Lithgow involved in Interstellar. I'm just wondering, like, there's a lot of interesting connections. That's there. really interesting, yeah. dude. That's yeah. really interesting. And Lithgow, of course, I think won some some awards for his portrayal of Winston Churchill as well in, oh, okay. in The Crown. He was excellent in He's the good. I think he won an Emmy for that. The, the, the Crown, if you haven't watched that, by the way. Have excellent. not. Have not Queen watched Elizabeth it. II, hot in that. And you know who else is hot Who's in, in that? It's Queen Elizabeth. It's about the Queen Elizabeth II. Oh, II. she's hot. Yeah. Who plays her? I don't know the woman's name. Okay. So they're doing six seasons. They've only done two so far, okay. and they're recasting every two seasons. So she gets older. Oh, that's and, very inventive. And Princess Margaret, who's her little sister in it, she's like in her 20s in the movie, in the show, the first two seasons. Oh, Is be, that HBO? Be, be still my beating heart. Netflix. Oh, that's Netflix. Okay. I actually watched both seasons of it on the way that. to and from you. Oh, on, on my phone. Philly to yeah. LA? Yeah. I never watched that on a big TV. I only watched oh, it. Oh, you Netflix. watched it on your phone in yeah. the plane? Yeah. Because <laughs> you can, you know, download shit. From Netflix. Absolutely. All right. You said you wanted to talk about Tars and Case yeah. with the robots. Love the robots. Now, th- I like this, too. I like that the the robots in the movie are incredibly realistic to me. I was reading a little bit about the geometry and the dynamics of the way they move and the way they're built. So what's really interesting about them is that they're basically rectangles with legs that are rectangular offshoots. And so this apparently makes like a bunch of mathematical geometric permutations that make it actually a really practical design choice. Which is for, so cool. Which is which is wild. And they show like the very, especially on Miller's Planet, they show how it can move. And like it moves basically like almost like a jack from the side. Yeah. Like a like it's a spinning you know top basically. And I like these characters a lot because they seem to be really realistic portrayals of what I think these robots will probably be like. They have two computer interfaces on them, like screens, like monitors. They can speak, but they they let all this data go, so you can read them, and they have these personalities, and you They're can built set personalities. Yeah, and it's really cool, and I like actually. I think it's actually. I don't know if it's Tars or Case. One of them is like set with really high sarcastic and humor levels, and then <laughs> I love that. And but then when I think it's when Tars and McConaughey are together going into the Event Horizon, I think. He yeah, says that's something like, he, yeah, he says something like, you don't talk very much, huh? And he's like, oh, Case does enough talking for the both of us or whatever. <laughs> Case I, I, is the one with uh, Amelia on the at, on her planet at right, the end, right? Right, exactly. Okay. okay. 
So there, I always found that really interesting. But what do you like about Tarzan Case? There's a few things I love about the robots. I love that there was a really decisive choice not to go with an anthropomorphic robot, first of all. I thought that was very inventive. And it also speaks to, now we're talking about almost 2020, this movie probably taking places, for, you know, to the best of our knowledge, about 2050, that the robots, first of all, the design of the robots doesn't, as cool as they are and as practical as they are and as awesome as they are, it doesn't seem like they're hyper-futuristic. It seems more grounded in a near reality. Like I could, if a robot existed, I could see this existing 30 years from now. I love it. Again, talking about grounding it in a believability, which is really cool. And I love the way they move. I love the way they can unfold and sort of, you know, the way they get around and the different things you see them do over the course of the movie, which is really cool, which, you know, more and more they reveal their capabilities as the movie goes on, which is cool because they're very sort of staid and stagnant at first. And they're moving around almost kind of clumsily, although you kind of recognize that it is kind of cool, the physics behind how they're moving around. It's very practical. And I love that they're built in with, you know, they're sort of built as wise cracking robots because that's very, you, you would think that's very comforting to have something that you could associate with on a human level for an astronaut that may be very well be going to their doom. You know, and I love it's also the pre it occurs to me, too. It's like a wisecracking robot, a, a precursor to Rogue One's K2SO, you know, right. but also a robot that's dutiful, not a wisecracking robot. That's sort of like this wild card. Like, is this like K2SO as, as like, awesome it's not rogue? As, yeah. Right. As awesome as K2SO is there. You know, you have the thoughts of the movie like, is this character going to kill somebody who shouldn't? You know, they're dutiful, but they're funny. And it's sort of, they are the levity in the movie, especially the first half of the movie, or throughout the movie, I would say. And I love the mechanics of how they move. I love the rescue on the water planet. When the one, I guess, which one is that, that rescues her on the water? I think, that rescues I think it's Case. I love that, dude. It's so cool. And and played by the voice actor who plays them. Who plays them? Um, I, Bill Irwin. Yeah. Right? But he's also the one moving it around. I thought it was CG. Yeah, no, it's not. And apparently they like actually removed, they re- it was easier for them to remove the humans digitally than, than CG. The- Dude, that's insane how cool that looks. And you know what? If you look about it, if you really look at it, though, in retrospect, it does make sense. It doesn't really look like CG. It doesn't look like bad practical effects the way that, you know, the locomotion of the robots. But I love the fact that it's not CG. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So cool. Yeah, very well done. I love it. And I like the the dialogue with them is probably the best written dialogue in the movie. I don't know that I look at Nolan and Jonathan Nolan as like a great, the greatest dialogue person as much as I look at him as just great storytelling and yeah. whatever the case might be. But I like the dialogue. The dialogue is constantly, it's cute. It's too cute, right? But the, the rest of the movie isn't too cute, so it fits perfectly in there. Very good I, point. I love like when he's telling jokes and McConaughey keeps lowering his humor level and then he tells another joke and he's like do you want to get lower to like 55 or whatever right, and then he just exactly. says and he's just quiet like he doesn't say anything else right it's really cute and it's really funny and the one thing that i really noticed about this that i think is also scientifically real and i don't remember if kip thorne brought this up in his book or not because he talks about case and, and tars in the book but oh it, he does yeah is that i have to read that you should it's a great book and i it really get highly recommended at the science of interstellar it's called and what's interesting about them to me is that and, and the ships themselves is that you would think in a futuristic setting, if you were kind of, you know, being crazy with it, you would think that like, the ship would have an AI and you would interface with the AI or whatever, but they don't. The, the ship doesn't have an AI that they directly interface some way with the ship. Okay. So it's cool. It's, it's In other words, it it's reasonable to expect that we didn't get advanced or far enough to create a ship that can really 
do this, but we do have ma- machines that can help us fly. Great them. point. You know, so it's like a evolutionary step into what we assume will be like, you know, eventually uh, a ship that is AI controlled or whatever, or that the ship that had its own AI. And Very maybe it shows cool. a fear inherently in, in, in ter- AI going rogue or whatever, you know. Very good point. Because there is one thing where you wonder about the, well, at least I do. I wonder, I'm like, well, what's stopping this AI from going rogue? That's always a big fear. There is one thing where he says, like, we need, it's actually when they're on man's planet and he has a machine that you find out he ended up gutting and destroying. Yes. Because the data was false. So he has all the the real information, but he says, like, we need a human override to this. Like, they can't do anything to this thing without having human permission. So there's some sort of, like, system in place that these, these machines work within but not around or above. Exactly. Which is pretty cool. Very cool. Very well thought out, you know, for such a seemingly small detail in the film. And I love how quick they are, too, in the sense that, you know, when they're, they're stranded on Miller's planet, he's like, how much time do we need? It's like 45 minutes to an hour. He says it like 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 that or whatever. Right. It's like they know exactly yeah. what to say, when to answer. And you know what's also striking about for, just for robots in general, but it really struck me, especially with Case and Tars in this movie, was, you know, these programs, they have to, it's to serve man. They must help humans. That is their mission. They have to, and they have to do it as quickly as possible. And that was always so, that's always so neat. That's really pronounced in the movie because they, you know, not only do they, like, that was a perfect way to say it. They answer so quickly, so readily. They know everything, but they also, they're on command, you know, spring into action. So cool. I well, want something like that. Yeah, well, I, I do too. And I, I, what I like about it is that he didn't answer like right now, approximately 53 minutes and 42 seconds until the engines are dried out or whatever. He like, doesn't really know and it's probably going to change the answer is probably going to change a million times so he just gives an approximation it shows like uh, a cleverness in the way that the robot was conceivably programmed definitely definitely. which is pretty cool very cool now Dagan what else is it that you that you want to talk about in you know what those were the really we've been pretty thorough here yeah and I'm I'm proud of the job we did on this movie it's a hard because it's a complicated movie and this so you know especially the science which we discussed a little bit especially at the end is complicated to discuss I think we did an okay job but, oh, you know what I wanted to ask you about, Kyle? Before we mentioned, we or we already went into the set pieces and how beautiful that was. So we, that, I think we covered that pretty well. But this is a thing that I wanted to talk to you about and pick your brain about. The especially, well, well, throughout the film, you see it early on, especially the people that are shown, the older people, the old people being interviewed on the TVs and playing what the old people are saying on the televisions. What do you make of that whole thing? What do you, why was that included in the movie? Like what, what? That is interesting because we brought up before, right? We brought up before that that is real footage of real survivors from the 30s. Right. Right. From Ken Burns. The Dust Bowl. Right. The Dust Bowl documentary that he did. And my assumption is, is that it grounds it a little bit. Like I said earlier when we talked about it, they could have filmed those theoretically. Like I, I said to you yesterday, but I remember seeing it for the first time. I'm like, that's Ken Burns. Yeah. Like you, even if you had never seen Ken Burns, you could just tell by the way they're shot. I'm like, that's clearly a Ken Burns interview. It's just the, the, Maybe it's just because I've seen literally 100 hours of Ken Burns footage, which I literally probably have at this yeah. point. I mean, I watched all 25 hours of the baseball documentary. You can you can, yeah. you can understand that, like, I get into it with Ken Burns. And by the way, They're Ken so Burns funny. revealed on Twitter that his next documentary is about the American Revolution. We were talking there about that earlier. Go. But that's not fiction. So that's a little true. Different. True. I mean, if I, we can get all sorts of American Revolution history. It's almost as good as fiction, but the way he does it. So my assumption is, is that it was supposed to ground it in some sort of recognizable reality. And showing some sort of parallel, whether or not the audience knew or not, that like these people are real and they're talking about something else. And that's how real it is, is that like they could literally be talking about 
this situation, but they yeah. aren't. Okay. I think most people go into that movie real not realizing that that stuff is is literally thirty year old footage. From. I didn't know before I read it. I had First no of all, idea. it's in four three, so that's like one identifier that's old. And the oh, good point. And the other thing is is that it, it, I recognize it again just from that documentary, but. I really think it was just supposed to be a, t- a normal touchstone for us to say, like, this is for, for people maybe in the know. I think it's especially interesting to be like, you could have just taken that documentary and it could have been about the events leading up to this movie. But right. It's, but it's not. And they seem like it's not one of those things where they're just being, again, cute by half and just showing it in the beginning. Again, they tie it into the universe at the end. Sure. Absolutely. That that footage is supposed to exist in that universe. So. But it's, isn't it funny, Cobb? Does it bother you a little bit? I think it bothers me inherently just a little bit that they're talking about, you know, the 1930s, the Depression, the Dust Bowl, which was terrible in North America. But it's a small disaster compared to what is supposedly happening to the Earth. Right. The entire, you know, so I, I that's the only thing that bothers me about it is that you're talking about something that was a little a little smaller than what's actually supposedly happening here. You know, where the planet is actually perishing. You know, the Dust Bowl was something that the country got through. Well, it was terrible. It was absolutely an awful period for American history. But now you're talking about something that's amplified by, you know, tens, I would right. say. I'm more so, curious, like, why, the, what he's like, he must have seen that when the movie was in production or something, I assume. And, and Yeah, because it's only, that documentary is only from like 2012 or something, right? Oh, the Dust Bowl one? I guess that. I think so. Yeah, I guess it is. Yeah, so I think it is a newer too, one. Not too much. And yeah, I guess the footage. Movie. So I guess the footage will be even a little older. I said 30 years. It's probably even a little older than that. Oh, that's a good it. point. That's true. But yeah, no, you're right. I guess it is. I guess it's I don't know. I like it as a touchstone, but it's one of those in the know cute things that yeah. I don't think I think was probably probably not even something nah, that's, that's relevant to most people. Good point. But otherwise, I don't know that I have much else. I mean, I have a lot to say about the movie, but what I am curious about is just, you know, do you think that this movie is as good as I think it is? I, I really think this is one of the great movies of all time. Like for, I, I've never I've never seen I don't I've not seen many movies. Right. I can't qualify that. I'm not, you know, fucking, you know, a cinephile or whatever. But sure. This is one of the best movies I've ever seen out of the surely hundreds of movies that I've seen in my life. I think this you know, it's you might you might not be a cinephile. You might not have seen a lot of movies in general, but you've certainly seen a lot of movies that would be in this, you know, that would be shoulder to shoulder with this movie in sci fi, modern sci fi. You know, something that's, you know, a space, space movies, you know, you've probably seen the lion's share of those. So you could definitely make a decision on, you know, this movie holding up against its peers, I would say. It's just that sci-fi and horror, are the two genres that often go off the deep end so easily, especially horror, but sci-fi too, where. Very true. And to not to make a movie like this that is an Oscar worthy movie, basically, in that genre is difficult. It's it's not something that happens very often. It's no. just like it's just like when what was that movie? Get Out or whatever that that yeah, that, that horror, horror movie. movie. Yeah. That that movie was like so popular and so well respected. It's because that doesn't happen. Doesn't like happen that, that, like that. The horror movies don't get that kind of. I always point out to Aaron. I'm like, if you look at the Netflix ratings, they got rid of the ratings. But back in the day, all of the horror movies are rated terribly, no matter like what horror movie no it is, because what. horror movies are just not very good. No, like, you know, I think it's changing now. I would argue our horror movies are starting to change in the last five years. You know, you have a lot of good ones now, you know, and you have a lot of um I mean, look at that one. I won't watch it. Who is the mom from um, The Sixth Sense? I can't think of her oh, name. Oh, I don't know. The horror movie that she did recently over the last few years. I won't watch it. But I think there is a re- I think there is a rebirth of horror. But I know exactly what you're saying. Traditionally, horror movies are shit upon. Right. And, and they're not and, well done. No, they're not. I mean, and, and once in a while they are, right? Like, I love Children of the Corn and the original Friday the 13th. And I love I love Jason especially. Like, But you have to take them for what they are. And I think sci-fi is a really similar thing where... 
I love Deep Impact. I think that movie is like really awesome, but it's fucking insane, right? Like right. Independence Day is a really oh, great movie. Oh, Independence Day is a great but example. It's in, but it's insane. It's a totally insane movie, and they absolutely ruined it with the sequel. I don't know how that even got greenlit. But when you take those movies and you're like, all right, we kind of just go in with a different expectation. It's kind of what we talk about with Star Wars. Like, I never go into a Star Wars movie anymore expecting anything but a bad movie. And if, if it's anything better than that, like when we saw with Solo right. or Rogue One, I'm like pleasantly surprised. I'm like, that was great, you know? So it's a similar thing with sci-fi where I'm like, it's just not a very well, it's not very taken very seriously. It's usually pretty low budget. A lot of people don't like these kinds of movies. Sure. And Interstellar is like a serious movie. It is. It, it definitely is. It's a thinking man's movie as well. Yeah, it, it, it is. And it it's mind bending. It, it's, I don't know that anyone really has their mind wrapped around all of it. I, I certainly don't in the sense, and I, I'm a big fan of it in just the sense of the time travel and the time dilation the wormhole, the various plot holes, the convenience of everything that how, how it happens, the Tesseract, and it's a lot. But I think it all makes sense. And I think that this is Christopher Nolan's best movie. I don't know how. Mm, that's interesting. Now, I've never that. seen The Prestige, so that's the one that. You haven't seen But Prestige. from Memento all the way through to Dunkirk, I've seen all the other ones. Yeah. And I don't know that I would think that any of them are better than this. You would maybe talk about Inception right below it or something like yeah, that. Yeah, they're very similar movies as far as Thinking Man's movies, you know, half part entertainment, half part. I would say this movie is even it has even stronger emotional quality than Inception does. But Inception has that too. Inception has that. But you know what I love love Kyle about what you said, the replayability, the replay value of the movie in our quest for understanding it better. You know, that gives it a lot of replayability. A lot of replay value. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely a movie. I mean, I, I, like I've said, I've seen it, you know, I, I would assume half a dozen times at this point. I still get new things out of it. I know what's oh, going to happen. I could see that happening. Absolutely. But I love, I just love, you know, the things that I take away from it that I love, I just love Gargantua. I love the idea of that the system exists around a collapsed star, that it, it, it's just a really interesting setup. It's, it's it, nothing about it's very traditional, right? No. The, the AI, the story is not traditional. The way that the flight and the robots is not traditional. The wormhole isn't traditional. The, the adherence to physical reality isn't traditional. Breaking fourth and fifth dimensional kind of things is not traditional in a scientific way. There's nothing really traditional about it, yet it that's why it works. It's be, like science fiction should try to be interstellar. Yeah. It, it shouldn't really be any other way. I don't know that there's much room in my mind anymore for shit sci-fi. No, it's very, you're right. It's very easy to run sci-fi off the rails. And this movie doesn't. And it's really grounded in a very cohesive and strong and fresh vision, you know, and that's really what makes it so wonderful. You know, you do. You, is it the your favorite non-franchise sci-fi movie of all time? Would you say? I think it's probably my favorite sci-fi movie of all time. I you think put it, it I, above everything. Yeah, I would say so. That's cool. That's yeah. really cool, man. It says a lot. It is a very strong movie. The only thing where, you know, and you, you and I have slightly different tastes when it comes to this. The only probably place I would like to see it improve is that for me personally it's a little too cryptic I would like to know a little bit more of what the hell is going on here like why I don't even know this is important I just think that speaks to my personality of just wanting a little edification but that's kind of greedy because the movie doesn't really need it the movie works without the in all fairness the movie does work without that right I think that what would have been interesting, an interesting move, would it just to make the movie, like I said, either make it two parts or just make it longer. You know, I've been to movies, like I saw Gods and Generals, of course I did in the theater. And there's a literal intermission in that movie. Like, wow. where, you, like where you literally like, all right, go How long to the was bathroom. That film? It's like four and a half hours or something like that, you know? Wow. It needs and the same thing yeah. with like Braveheart. I think even Gettysburg was similar. Okay. Because Gettysburg and Gods and Generals are in the same like series or whatever, you know, of whatever the fuck. I don't even remember anymore. It's been a long time. But 
you know, both Civil War movies. But I remember seeing those movies and even Braveheart is a really long, you know, I remember when Braveheart came out on VHS, it was a double VHS. I, I'll never forget that. Same with Godfather, I think, back in the day. Yeah, it was. Correctly. Yeah. But the point is, is that like Christopher Nolan should have had a little more latitude, I think, to make the movie longer. And to been like, because I know that some people think this movie is too long, which I think is nuts. I don't think there's like a wasted moment in it's this like movie. It's like 249. It's... Yeah. Some people think it's too long. I don't a lot feel of people, like it's too long. A lot of people like their movies between like 100 minutes and 120 minutes. Or right. They minutes. want in that right in that wheelhouse. Right. right and in I, that sweet to, spot. Right. And I think that like what's so funny about it is that it was it used its time so judiciously. And I don't think there's a wasted second in the movie or anything that really should have been cut out. If anything, there should be like another hour of it. So I wish that they explain. I, I wish that there was just more before they got to space especially was there a training program? How do you know how to fly this thing? How do they find you? Isn't this a little weird? Like they could have explained and exposed more of that of, of it there. And then I think they could have probably spent more time on Miller's man's end yeah. and maybe even gone to Edmund's planet more. So that does seem a little rushed. You're right about that. Those moments seem a little rushed. You, you only want exposition where it seems lazy, which is smart. That makes sense to me. I want it spelled out a little more. You know, I want the pretty little ribbon on it, which is not very... Very Spielberg. You would have gotten that if Spielberg, Spielberg directed it. See, I was a sucker for Spielberg. Yeah, Spielberg directed this. You would have gotten all your Oh, answers. I would have got everything. I would have got the bow on top of the bow on top of the bow. You know what I mean? Before I forget to tell you, Kyle, the the horror movie that I was referring to from a few years ago is called Hereditary oh, with Tony Collette. Oh, okay. Yeah, Dude, yeah. it looks absolutely horrifying. It lo- But again, like sort of... I don't know if that movie kicked up because I'm not a horror aficionado or expert by by any means but i don't know if that movie did or you know around that time but that's when horror seemed to be you know now they're making some serious horror films yeah which is the witch the witch as well which was borderline way too horrifying for me to see but i had to watch it have you seen that no i've not seen that dude that's a fucking amazing movie. what's that about that's about i don't know if i want to use the if i'm using the wrong word here like a quaker traditional quaker family set back in the day oh cool where the daughter becomes basically the family is basically being terrorized. They're like a farm, a rural farming family. They're basically being terrorized by this force, and it turns out to be this witch living in the woods. Absolutely horrifying. Absolutely nice. Horrifying. It sounds awesome. So good, dude. I so love good. good horror. It's just so rare, you know. Oh, like you said, though, getting less rare. And again, with sci-fi, maybe getting less rare. I, I can't imagine any sci-fi filmmaker today not citing this movie as an inspiration. And oh, if you're, there and if you're you go. not, if you're not trying to make something that's kind of like interstellar in terms of its aesthetic, in terms of its groundedness i think you're a fucking fool yeah personally. you're gonna see this this movie because it's only been five years so you're gonna see this movie you're gonna see christopher nolan and his vision i would love to see him return to sci-fi actually me too but you're gonna see a lot of you're gonna see a lot of people sort of monkeying what he's doing I, that's why i was a little i love dunkirk i thought it was great but that's why i was a little disappointed i'm like eh, like uh, i don't I, want you to do this i hear you You know like i feel i'm like this is i, I get you, you do whatever you want but like this is kind of a waste of your time like i would rather you do something else I how know. many world war ii movies do we need we i i would rather and i love world war ii no one loves world war ii more than colin i feel like i sound like donald trump but <laughs> but talk about yourself yeah that. like no one loves something more than me no one loves the troops more than me <laughs> But I would have loved to see, like, I just feel like that's like, you know, we only have so X amount of time with Christopher Nolan and I wish that way. And he's only going to make Y amount of movies. So I just wish that it was. Yeah. You know, I would love to see him return to something cool. I'd love to see him return to Batman, actually. But that would be cool. That would be very cool. I don't think they can afford it. (laughs) It's either him or or Bruce Tim at this point. Right. No, we need the third awesome sci-fi movie starting with I from Christopher Nolan. We had Inception, Interstellar. Now we need the third one. Yeah, it would be awesome. The one that ties them together somehow and in a movie that no one understands. 
You know, <laughs> we definitely, you know, what, Kyle, also you and I were talking about this a yeah. little bit before we started the show. This movie also makes me think of because of the awesome, it's an awesome handling of sci-fi, not a Christopher Nolan film, not only an awesome handling of the sci-fi genre, but also, you know, sort of a roundabout story of parents and daughters arrival, 2016's arrival. Excellent movie. Awesome movie. You're talking about, I would talk about this movie in the same breath as Interstellar, not as good as Interstellar, but a damn good movie. So... That very good movie. Good. One of the, as I told you, one of the very few movies I went out of my way to go see in the theater because that's a column movie. Oh, you did see that in the theater? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I saw that's that a big screen movie, especially with those giant vertical black monoliths and all that. You have to see that. That's a big screen. That's just a pro- the scale of it. That's a profoundly what that movie has for sci-fi is it's creepy. It is. And and sci- same with Alien and stuff like sci-fi and can can cross into anything, you know, so. No, it's exciting. And I, I think that hopefully we do see more of this inspiration and more of this serious sci-fi, just like we have. You know, like you said, the series horror, which I think is great. So, again, Christopher Nolan's Interstellar came out in 2014. It's available. I rented it on Amazon Prime. I'm sure you guys can rent it there. I'm sure it's available on Blu-ray, DVD, whatever you guys want to see. So if you haven't seen it yet for some reason, go watch it. But I highly encourage people to watch it again if they haven't and, and read that Kip Thorne book because it's really, really good if you're into science. I got to read that for sure. And kind of how they, you know, it basically just explains like this is how this is possible. or This is why we think that this is the way it would go. And it's it's pretty cool. It would if you're, if you're, a, nerd, if you're a huge nerd, yeah, yeah, oh yeah, I mean, you know, I I need it, you know, it might give me a little more insight. I I probably walk away knowing a little more, understanding a little more of the film, not much, but a little more. I think you will. I'm I'm definitely confident in that. Now, Dagan, let's wrap up with our seg our closing segments as we wrap up this episode and Wave Eight. Okay, our closing segment, right. First of all, let me say, I had, I'm had i leaving in a little while. It's been great being here in L.A. Yeah, I really enjoyed recording Wave 8 with you. It's always a lot of fun. I love it. Yeah, I likewise. Like thank you so much for taking the time. It's awesome. I love it. And I hope we hope all you guys are doing well out there. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you guys so much. And, you know, this is our final round of the closing segment of Do I Know You or Do I Know You? So I'm going to ask Kyle. A pop culture, sort of nerd culture related question. This is our last one. Not doing too well. You're two for seven? I'm two for seven. So this yes. could be this could be pretty respectable. Three for eight would be a pretty respectable if you were a baseball player, for instance. That would be pretty respectable. Not too bad. Not too bad, but I gotta get it. That'd be very respectable. But here's the thing. Yeah. Even two for eight. I have good. to Khan's gonna give his answer, but I have to guess what it is. So but here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go double or nothing on this one, Kyle. It's my game. Yeah, you can you make the rules. I might go. No, okay. We'll keep it at double or nothing. Okay. And this way I could finish respectably if I get it right. If I get it wrong, it's going to make it even worse. Okay. But I'll take that risk. Yeah, please do. I wrote down the last question I wanted. To- okay, I know what it is. Okay. Yeah, this is it. All right. So I'll put my All right. Uh, so Colin's going to put his headphones on. All right. I'm gonna. It's a double question. So give me a little extra time, Kyle. Okay. So, all right, Kyle, guys. So I'm going to ask Colin two questions. I hope I get them both right. Uh, the first one is going to, I'm going to say, what 80s TV character would you most like to be best friends with? What 80s TV character would you most like to be best friends with? And I'm going to say, I'm going to cheat a little bit and have two answers just to kind of protect myself a little bit. I'm going to say Kramer or Jerry Seinfeld. And then I'm going to ask Colin a bonus question. I'm going to say, what all-time TV character would Colin like to be best friends with? What all-time TV character would Colin like to be best friends with? And I'm going to guess, again, in that Seinfeld theme, Larry David. Larry David. Okay. All right, Carl, I'm ready for you. Okay. Ready for you, Carl. Carl, I'm ready for you. <laughs> now, Carl. Yeah. Question number one. There's going to be a two-parter. Okay. Audience already knows 
what I what I'm what I had guessed. We'll see if they match up. They're playing along at home. They're guessing too. They're either agreeing with me or disagreeing with me right now. Okay. Kyle, what eighties TV character would you most like to be friend best friends with? What eighties TV character would you most like to be best friends with? Fictional character, not the actor or actress. You could pick whoever you want. I answered two things just to protect Alex myself. Eaton. Oh, that's a good answer. Give me one more. Boner. Boner. <laughs> All right. I, <laughs> I got know, it wrong. I, I got, this is the problem is that if I thought about this for an hour, I'd probably come up with a really great answer. All right. I said Kramer and Jerry uh, Seinfeld. Yeah, they're not. That's not an 80s show. I mean, it started in 89, I guess, but it's. Did it start in 89? I thought it yeah. started in 87. No, no. 89. Oh, I thought it started in 87. And it was only five episodes, I think, in 89. Is that right? Yeah, so I don't really consider. I mean, if that was, I don't consider that a. Uh, and right. George would be the answer out of them. Because would George be the answer George, out of George those? is fucking crazy. And anyone, if you're friends with George, you'd feel great about yourself. Boner, I would have never got. What was the first one again? Your first answer Alex again? Alex Oh, Alex Bikini is like, Family Ties is one of my favorite shows of all time. Boner. Boner, of course, is the be- is Mike Seaver's best friend from Growing Pains. Oh my God, he's Which takes place in Huntington, New York, of course. Yes, it does. Long Island, New York. I could see you getting along with Alex Bikini. He's hilarious. Yeah, he was just the guy I was, you know, I, I thought that was a good answer. All right. Let's see if I get this reprieve, though. Okay. What all-time TV character, all-time TV, morning, noon, or night, daytime TV, cable, whatever, what all-time TV character would you most like to be best friends with? Do you think it would be fun to be best friends all with? All-time. All-time. Larry David from Kirby Yes, Louisiana. I got that one right. There you go. There, Very nice. I got one right. You doubled down. Not bad. Not bad at all. So they, that, that kind of round canceled itself out. Yeah, so but I f- you it's like a walk. So you finished two for seven. You were it's not even an at bat. You finished two for seven. Right, right. We but don't I even count ended on a high note. Yeah, a two for seven, and you got on base three times. So that's actually pretty good. It's pretty bad. Two but, for seven is like what is that like? Mm, two batting two twenty or something. That's not terrible. I mean, it's uh, not good. It's not good. It's, it's not, not terrible. All right. Well, uh, we tried. We. I mean, it's even higher than that. Anyway, can't blame you for this one. Two for seven. No, that's even that's that's two twenty is not right. Now this is going to bother me forever. It's like Maybe you're betting like 300 twos. or 280 twos, or something. Yeah, high yeah. twos, high twos. That's fine. Anything north of 280, I'd be, I'd be satisfied with. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's probably where I that's batted great, when I actually played. So, oh, I probably bad. I batted probably zero because I never swung. I would walk every time. Is that right? I would never swing. Sometimes I would swing just to make it seem like I was playing. But the, when you're a kid, like no one can hit the strike zone. No, you were inviting. The so odds. I would like swing just to make it seem like I care. But I knew I was getting on base, and then I would steal second. Would you ever I get would hit? Steal oh, third. then you would steal. Dude, everyone can get on base and everyone can steal when you're a kid. If you just know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think they were going to allow my son's league. My, fun pl- my son plays in a league that's like first and second graders. And I didn't think stealing was going to be allowed. The only thing not allowed is, you know, it's only two innings of kid pitch. So it's mostly machine pitch. But the only thing not allowed is sliding. Oh, apparently. you can't slide. I was going to say leading or something. But no you can't, sli- you can't, no you sliding. Can't that's the only thing. And what? no what? stealing home. No stealing yeah, home. Yes, that's, that's a grave no insult. Yeah. No that's stealing. interesting. Why can't you slide? I think they're worried about kids getting hurt. Oh, you, you got to learn eventually how to slide. As long as someone's sliding in the first, like just a too chunk. early. It's too early. You know? I hate when people slide in the first. So weird. Oh, sliding in the first is the worst. Sliding like when people slide head first when it's a really close call. I'm like, I think you're slowing down when you do that. I can't teach my son to overrun first. Like he thinks he has to stay on the bag. Yeah, and it's hard to under. It's hard to explain because I don't want to add confusion because you can't overrun the other bases. Right. I mean, you can, but you better get back on it. Right. You know right. what I mean. So. I, I want to tell him to I don't want him to like break his knee by stopping so abruptly on first base, but I don't want to confuse him by set, you know, by the whole phenomenon of being able to overrun the base. It's one of those little nuances that you remember, like, how did I learn this? I can't wait till he gets beamed and there's a bench clearing <laughs> brawl when he's in fourth grade. 
Because you were saying one of the kids pitched behind him, right? Yes. Or something, which is fucking awesome. Yeah, it just went right behind him. Holy by like shit. a foot. He was warning or him. Or two feet. That's a bench That's a bench warning. That's like <laughs> that's a dugout warning. It was a message pitch. I said, yeah, because I said the d- umpire comes out at that point and just points at both. <laughs> points at both. At both. Dugouts. <laughs> and just walks back. <laughs> he pitched behind him. That's fucking awesome. It's amazing. Now, Kyle. Yeah. Last dad jokes. I have this dad joke I've been carroting in front of you guys for the whole time. I think it's a little rude. <laughs> I think it's a little off color. The only thing is, here, listen, I'm going to tell it to you guys. Yeah, please do. I'm not making fun of these type of people, and I'm going to give you my philosophy behind why I'm telling you at the end. You You really feel like you need to qualify yourself? Yeah, because it's me. Okay. Please. All right, go ahead. Now, all right, hold on. I got to delete the ones I already read because... Because you don't want to remember these. There's There's one. I'm going to read a follow-up, and then I'll read the last one. Okay. If your house doesn't have numbers on it, that's something you need to address. It's, it's pretty bad. That doesn't really now, make any. It doesn't really make any sense. That's like more of like a wordplay thing than anything else. No, I like the wordplay ones. I think I'm attracted to the yeah. wordplay ones because really. it doesn't really make any sense. Okay, there's no numbers on your house, so you have to ad- you have to address yeah, it. Yeah, I know, but it's addressing as a verb. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Fine. Now, <laughs> final one. I apologize in advance. I'll give you. I'll give you why it's okay to say this. My theory for why okay. it's okay. To say You're this really way. setting this one up. To the man in the wheelchair who stole my camo jacket. You can hide, but you can't run. <laughs> now, the guy in the wheel, my guy in the wheelchair is not disabled. He just has a broken leg. Yeah, I was going to say, why didn't you just rewrite it? You could have just said the man on the crutches. Well, I don't know if it would be as funny. Oh, the man on the crutches? If you were really worried about insulting people in wheelchairs. Oh, you're right. I could have went with the, yeah. The man, like you could have literally come up with any injury. Great. Now I just, now I've insulted Why do you hate people, people no in wheelchairs? <laughs> He I just didn't know has a broken about, leg. I didn't know you were an ableist. This is he super weird. He just has weird. a broken leg. It's FDR. <laughs> Polio. Great. I insulted people in wheelchairs for no reason. I know. You fool. I didn't I know. know you hated people in wheelchairs. That's super interesting. That's oh, a really interesting thought. Don't that say that. God forbid. <laughs> that's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and that's how we That's how we end. That's how we're ending it. We you just, you it chose up. to end it there, not me. Knockback wave eight. Wave eight is over. We hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much for your support, your love, your kindness. Dagan, hope you have a f- safe travel back to Philadelphia. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, you for having summer. me. You're very yeah, welcome. Yeah, we'll, we'll uh, reconvene in July. Yep, we're actually going to record a few remotely because the time is just not lining up for us for this, for Wave 9, so we'll do some intermediaries that are going to be normal episodes, but we'll record them remotely. They're going to be awesome. They'll be fine. We recorded one episode remotely. and Which one was that again? I forget. It was the, the oh, year it was anniversary, anniversary one. one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But if I didn't say anything, no one would have noticed. No, so, they wouldn't know. So I'm not going to say, well, I guess we'll, maybe we'll make note this time, but I'd, I'd like to see if people know it. Actually, oh. so, I actually think the audio quality might, the audio quality of the show is already really good, but I think it might even be better. We'll uh, make a game of it. Okay. Can you guess? Can you guess? We'll figure it out. You don't yeah, maybe critical. we'll throw some of them in here. Like interrupt the wave and throw some of the pre-recorded ones. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, I could do that. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. What did I just call you? Dang. I don't know. Dang. I have none. <laughs> Dang, thanks for your time. <laughs> thank, Appreciate thank you, Colin. Jesus Christ. Yeah, thank we're just we're getting rid of vowels. Yeah. What, well, uh, one of them. We're tired. Them. I'm very tired. I'm very tired. I, we, we we had a nice time last night, too. We went out to eat. And yeah, it was nice. I, that I got, was a nice I got night. pretty drunk, and then I ordered donuts delivered and at like 2 in the morning. <laughs> yes, I, I housed like... a glazed donut and a whole cinnamon roll. <laughs> I like your style. Yeah, I have, no, I have no respect for myself at all. I like it a lot. No shame. <laughs> Remember, if you like our show Knockback, please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand for early ad free access to every episode of the show. Those perks carry over to my other shows as well. You can also submit questions, comments, concerns, thoughts and ideas for every episode. We let you know the topics. You can vote on topic ideas. Interstellar was a fan chosen topic. 
get exclusive podcasts, including six hours of Dagan Q&A if you haven't had enough of him already. I know. And so many of you haven't. Are you crazy enough amazing. to listen to that? Yes, they are. Are they crazy? I wasn't, but they are. No, you're not. <laughs> now, uh, I think that's it. I think that's all we have. Lo- all right, all right, all right. All right, all right. <laughs> Dig, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you all out there. Be good. We'll see you next time. Bye, Bye guys. Knockback is a product of and a registered trademark of Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded in Santa Monica, California and the Philadelphia suburbs of Pennsylvania, USA. The show is produced by me, Colin Moriarty, and was conceived of by myself and Dagan Moriarty, who is also my co-host. You can find me on Twitter at NoTaxation and on Instagram at CLS Moriarty. Dagan is on Twitter at Dagan1973 and on Instagram at DaganLikesToDraw. Knockback is edited by Dustin Furman. Any snail mail can be sent to our P.O. Box, P.O. Box 1233, Santa Monica, California, 90406. As you know, all things Collins Last Stand, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon, and we are eternally grateful for your kindness, generosity, and fandom. Carlos Algaret, C.J. Anderson, Morgan Ashley, Taylor Barkley, Sean Battershaw, Martin Beck, Eric Bishop, Mark Boggio, Eli Boisford, Michael Josiah Borison, Barrett Boswell, Daniel Boyer, Spencer Brand, Miguel Brewer, Lennon Brixie, Jimmy Brown, Josh Bushing, Austin Bullock, Andrew Burkhart, Dylan Burns, Chris Buston, Alex Cabrera, Brian Cacciatolo, Tom Cargill, Patrick Carper, William O'Carroll, Ryan Caulfield, Brian Chan, Travis Chandler, Sean Chandler, David Chestnut, Simon Conception Jr., Brad Cooley, Gio Corsi, Nick Cummings, Daniel D'Amour, Colin Davenport, Mitchell Durkash, Zachary Douglas, Night Draft, David Ellis, Martha Emery, Joe Finelli, Eric Finkenbeiner, Fodios Frangos, Michael Gallier, Chris Galvin, Connor Gashian, Alex Gates, Michael Gates, Salem Ghanem El Ghanem, Daniel Glassford, Tyler Goodwin, Josh Gravelick, Miranda Grubba, Tyler Harris, Kyle Hagel, Wyatt Henry, Asa Haas, Azan Isa El Ricey, Josh Yeager, John Jameson, Jimmy Jolicure, Joshua Jonathan, Greg Julius, Anton Kay, Jeremy Key, Antti Kinnanen, James Kinslow III, Ryan R. Kittredge, Jackson Lassiqua, Joe Lawson, Don Q. Lee, Patrick Leslie, Dustin Lewis, Keith A. Lewis, Chad Lewis, Lou and Ray Loper, Colin Love, Josh M, Ryan T. Mandel, Peter Mark, Michael Martinez, Sean Mason, Zachariah McAdoo, John McCarthy, Joe McPartlin, Andrew Mendoza, Christopher Midling, Alex Moans, Betty Ann Moriarty, Ryan Murdoch, Adam Nix, Donnie Nolan, George A. Nunez, Brian Ott, Jorge Palomino, Daniel Parsons, Brendan Peavy, Marius S. Peterson, Gerald Pennington, Enrique Perez, Nicholas Perfect, James Perone, Jason Pettit, Jeff Pollard, Louis Powell, Lawrence F. Prokop, Andrew Ramos, Ryan Reeves, Michael Renner, Peter Reynolds, Shane Rayum, Jonathan Rice, Mark Richardson, Toby D. Riemenschneider, Austin Riley, Petro Rose, A.G. Rowe, John Scholes, Michael Shanholtz, Brandon Sharkey, Toby Schutman, Joshua Smallwood, Daniel Streicharsk, John Tabanillo, Ahmad Tamar, Ben Thompson, Carl Tolman, Alan Tremblay, Jacob Turnboff, Phil Van Rall, Raymond Vargas, Michael Vecchio, Justin Wagaman, Oakley Waldron, Isaac Wastman, Damon Weathers, Mike Wayan, Corey Wyatt, Tony Zuniga, Casual Misfits Gaming, Supershot ST, Homeworld Hub, Throw7, Infinite, Organic Produce, Madmock Media, Fabian, Mubarak, Richter86, Hugo's Desk, Andrew, Ian, Crisk, Donk2015, and Gavin.